Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan. Today, we have on Brian McCabe. Brian McCabe is a name, if you're a hockey fan, that you should know, especially from the 90s and early 2000s, where Brian played over 1,100 NHL regular season games, 56 playoff games. He played for the New York Islanders, uh, where he was drafted 40th overall. Uh, was their captain, named captain at 22 years old of that franchise. He got traded to Toronto, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Vancouver, in a deal with uh, Todd Bertuzzi for Trevor Linden, a really big trade. He was also part of the deal to Chicago that brought over the draft pick that allowed Brian Burke to select the Twins, um, two and three. In that year's draft, he was also a Toronto Maple Leaf, where he really blossomed as a player, stepped into his own and for, geez, from the 2000-2001 season all the way to the 2008-2009 season was one of the top defensemen in the NHL. Uh, right up there with the likes of Rob Niedermeyer, Lidstrom, Zuboff, all these names. Brian was right there with goals, points, stats. Uh, he was an NHL all-star during that period. He represented Canada at the Olympics. Uh, he has an unbelievable hockey resume starting way back in junior where I had the opportunity to play to play with him with the Chiefs where he won back-to-back gold medals uh, for Canada at the World Junior Championships and uh, won a gold medal at the World Championships as, as, a, as an NHLer and we get right into all of that in this in this uh, interview Brian is very very transparent he's very authentic talks about his time um, all over his hockey journey, but we really do spend quite a bit of time in Toronto where, you know, he played his best hockey and also ironically got treated the worst, you know, by the fans there uh, when he ended up leaving. And he gets really personal about what was going on in his personal life at that time. And we really, I really get into the, the human aspect uh, of, of the hockey player uh, being Brian Burrard, the guy, the man, the father, uh, his journey to try to become a better leader and a better and a better hockey player and and this is an awesome awesome episode I, I I'm so thankful for Brian for spending the time um, not to mention that Brian is now the director of player development for the Florida Panthers and we get into that how his time in the game and 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 you know who he learned from and mentored from and what he's thought to be right and, and how he's doing that now with prospects of of the Panther organization to help them become Florida Panthers in the future so. This man is uh, is well worth li- listening to. I, I had a I had a great time reconnecting with Brian. Uh, we were good buddies back in the Spokane days, and and it was awesome to reconnect with him here. So uh, I ho- I know you're going to love this interview. There's so much good stuff in it. And without further ado, I bring you Brian Cape. All right, welcome back to Up My Hockey. I believe this is episode 19, and we have a good friend and an old teammate for three years uh, back in the day in Brian McCabe. So, Caber, thank you so much for agreeing to do this and coming on today. Anytime, buddy. It's a pleasure. Yeah, man. It was like 
I uh, we've I think I found you from that email, the Toronto Maple Leafs alumni email list, and they do a pretty good job of all the teams I play on of like having that together. And I saw your name on there one time and threw 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 a dart out there, and um, you ended up getting back to me, which is cool. And because we we kept in touch, I don't know if you remember. I remember like kept keeping in touch a little bit when you were in the aisle. Um, mostly in the aisle, actually, when you were in the Islanders, we kept in touch those first few years. And then, I mean, just life happens and hockey happens and kind of lost contact. And I think it, God, it had to have been at least 10, 10 years, if not more, since we'd chatted. Yeah, it, you get traded to five different teams, you get new phone numbers, and all of a sudden uh, you lose track of each other. But uh, it's a pleasure to see you again, buddy. Yeah, no, awesome. 100%. No, that's awesome. So, yeah, let, I want to get into your your, yeah, I mean, your personal career, man. Like you said, five different trades. Um, all big market teams, uh, you know, from a, from a 40th overall selection. Like, I want to kind of cover that. Like, your sort of highs, your lows, um, the things you saw, the people you played with. I think that's super relevant to, to my listeners and, and, and what's important to me with this podcast. And then get into what you're doing today, which is the Director of Player Development for the, for the Panthers, which is also super relevant because now you're helping young guys make that next step. Uh, and a lot of guys that are listening to this are trying to make that step and whatever step that they're trying to go to. So I think you're, you'll have a, a lot to offer here. So one thing that, that I saw there, Caber, when I looked, I didn't even know that you were born in St. Catharines. So when I was doing the kind of the homework for this, um, your Ontario boy that ends up playing in the WHL. Like, how, how did that happen in the first place? So I was born and uh, we moved to Calgary, Alberta, when I was about six months old. My dad got transferred. He worked for uh, GE, like Gillivan International, like electrical stuff. And as soon as I was born, uh, he got a better job in Calgary. So the family packed up and, you know, a lot of people see that. They think I played in the OHL, but, you know, uh, I was born in St. Catharines, but Calgary's my home and that's how the WHL transpired. Right, right. Yeah, cause I remember you from Calgary. I didn't remember anything from St. Catharines, but I guess that's just a birth certificate type thing. So, yeah, so we go WHL, you start off in Medicine Hat and it's like crazy because you got traded in, in junior twice. It, it was almost like a telltale of what's going to happen in your career because that's that's not I mean that's very rare to trade be traded twice in junior I mean how did that how did that first trade feel and how did that how did that whole thing go that you remember it was shocking uh the first trade I was devastated um you know I went to medicine hat as a 16 year old had a really good rookie year and was in my draft year as a 17 year old and um our team wasn't doing as expected in medicine hat and I was actually playing forward at the time, uh, which was odd, you know, back on forward. And I just remember getting the call in. It was a huge trade, too. I think it was like five for five, was it, or four for four? Like like eight or ten players involved in the trade. Never saw it coming. And basically had to pack my stuff and head to Spokane that day, that night. And, uh, you know, uh, spent a lot of time there. Obviously played – two and a half years there with you and spoke. And then, you know, obviously a lot of guys could trade their last year junior for the playoff stretch or whatever, and ended up finishing the career in Brandon and Memorial cup run and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, the bulk of my career was spent with you and spoke and uh, they were great years for sure. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so it was, it was like that you had to leave that day. I know like we'll get into some of your NHL trades and that was exactly what my NHL trade was like. You know, I mean, I had to pack up in two hours or three hours and I was on a plane and never to see that place again. The same thing at junior, hey? Yeah, so we packed my stuff up. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. A guy by the name of Oli Jenstad put us in the back of his Supra and drove us, him, John Duval, who came in the trade with me, Scotty Townsend, who you obviously played with too. Uh, we piled in his car and he drove me to my parents' house. 
in Calgary, and we all spent the night at my parents' house, and we were on a 7 a.m. flight to Spoke the next day and played that night. Um, it was a whirlwind, to say the least, at 17 years old, first trade ever, you know. Uh, being so close to home in Medicine Hat, you know, two and a half, three hours away, I'd see my family all the time, and now all of a sudden I'm going to another country. And, right. You know, it seemed like I was going to Japan or something, you know, for me yeah. in my eyes at that age. But, uh, you know, once it all settled in, it's all in all, I think it worked out for the best. Right. What did, um, how, maybe you should backtrack a little bit. How was that rookie year? So, I mean, playing at 16 in that league is, is not easy and not, not many guys do it, you know, so you were able to do it. You said you had a good year. Was that, were you expecting to make that team in Medicine Hat that year? Was that sort of in the cards for you or, or did you have to make that team coming and coming out of camp? Uh, that was my goal. I wouldn't say it was in the cards, but I would say I was probably penciled in. Uh, funny thing is that and a lot of people don't know this, but I was a forward my whole life until I was 15 years old. Uh, I've been a bulking centerman in Calgary, just, you know, racking up points pretty good, but I was bigger than everyone, you know, so it was more out of power and more than skill or skating. It was just that I was bigger and stronger than everyone. I could drop my leg wide and just score goals. Uh, but you know, they used to have those, uh, tournaments in the summer, the Vancouver super series yeah. and they put these all-star teams together. And I played on this, uh, the Southern Alberta team. Uh, so the guys from Calgary, Red Deer, Airdrie, stuff like that. And the uh, one summer we didn't have any like really good defensemen. So the coach said, can you play D for this tournament? And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, whatever's good for the team. So I played D in this tournament and the medicine hat scouts saw me play defense. And they came to me after the tournament and said, you know what, we actually like you better as a defenseman. If you play defense next year, uh, your last year at Bantam, you'll have a good shot to make our team as a 16-year-old. So I went to training camp in Bantam. And you know how they line the guys up, you know, forwards at this end, D at this end. And I went to the end with the D. And the coach was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm playing D this year. He's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, I'm playing defense. Because the year before, I led, like, the league in scoring in Calgary as a forward. <laughs> and the guy was like, no, wait, you're not playing D. And I was like, no, seriously, I'm going to play D this year. And I played D that year and never looked back. You know, made the team in Madison Hat the next year. And we had, a, we had an excellent team in Madison Hat. Older team, you know, probably one of the top-ranked teams in CHL all year. And, um, you know, I played as like the third pair D with a guy by the name of Evan Marble, who's actually a scout with the Panthers now. So yeah. I've kept in contact with him and he took me under his wing and uh, we had a great team. We were supposed to win it all. And we ended up getting swept in the first round by Swift Current. And then oh. coach is fired, new coach the next year, right. traded, you know, everything, the chips all sure. fell after that. Sure. That's crazy. And like, that's a great message. I mean, so the way you tell it, it sounds like you were really, willing to do that make that switch you mean so you're a top line centerman you know crushing goals and somebody asked you to play d and you're like yeah i'll go play d like i don't think there's a lot of players right now and and parents get their hair in a knot and everything else if, if a coach ever asks a guy to move and have a kid be uncomfortable but were you really that willing at the time to just give it a whirl is that the way you remember it yeah you know what i just wanted to make at that point in time, the WHL as a 16 year old and whatever it was going to take to get me there. Cause that was the next stepping stone I was going to do. So I bought into it. I actually enjoyed the year uh, in Bantam and, you know, had some success and it was fun. Uh, I just thought it would give me another attribute or be more versatile or whatever. I didn't think, I don't, I don't think at the time I thought I'd stay a defenseman the rest of my life or anything, but right. it just worked out that, um, you know, I wasn't the best, 
skater going forward. So I think in the end, it probably worked out for the best. I don't know if I would have made it as a forward. I wasn't that fleet of foot by any means, but uh, you know, things happen for a reason at the time. I was just, I just wanted to play. I didn't right. care where or how, just get me there, get my foot in the door. So I did what I needed to do. No, that's awesome though. I mean, I think that's great. A lot of guys would be resistant to that. I try and talk about adaptability and versatility, right? Like to be the more things you can do, the better, especially if you want to make it as a career, you know, like the, the more adaptable you can be, the better off you are. And to be able to, it probably would have helped you as a D man too, to understand what's hard as a forward coming in on a defenseman or, you know, like those types of things. I know when I, when I retired caver, I got some goalie gear because I was one of those guys that always have the blocker and trapper like yourself after practice. And yeah. I, had, I had a connection to that position. So when I was done at 30, it was, it was, I was too young at that point to be like in the men's league as a player, you know, like it just, there wasn't much of a challenger. So I got, I bought the goalie gear and I was like, Holy smokes. Like if I would have, I could have, I felt that I would have been a better goal scorer back to play again. Now knowing how difficult some of these transitions and movements are, right? Like as a goalie. So I, can you relate to that as a being a forward and switching to a D-man? Yeah, absolutely. I already knew, you know, what forwards thought or where they would go in certain places or, you know, where they wanted the pucks and stuff like that. So I had that Intel and to take the knowledge to be a D-man, you know, it was kind of ahead of the game because I knew what a forward was thinking when he was coming down, if he gave me inside or gave me outside or right. what have you, or, you know, where forwards hated to get passes along the walls or, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So definitely from a knowledge perspective, it was uh, very beneficial moving forward to, to be able to relate to those guys at yeah. both sides of the ice. How was that draft year for you? I mean, at the time, I mean, I, I got drafted, you were 93 and I was 94. So I was right after yeah. you. I mean, it was definitely a big deal at the time, but it's, it's not like it is now, you know, like as far as the publicity and the social media and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do you remember that being, you mean, stressful for you or, or like how, how was that draft year for you? Do, how do you remember that being? Yeah. Looking back now, um, I was, I had a terrible draft year. I let it get to me 110%. I let the talk get to my head. I let it affect my play, my demeanor, how I carried myself on and off the ice. I got cocky. I got arrogant. And I got traded subsequently. And looking back, I probably would have traded me too. Uh, the way I was playing and the habits I had were not, uh, I guess, uh, I just let stuff get to my head. You know, I played on the under-17 team, went to Japan, won a gold medal, you know, was rated in the first round. I let it all, all the noise get in my head. And I went out and had a terrible draft year. You know, I had 60 points, but I was terrible. I was inconsistent. I was cocky. I was fat. I was all the above and probably the worst day of my life and the best day of my life was the draft year when I thought I was going to go in the first round and sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there. And when I actually went at 40, I was devastated. Like I wasn't even happy, like, you know, which is looking back, you know, what a piece of crap I was like, you know, it's been my dream since I was five years old to play national hockey. You know, I get picked 40 and I would, I was not even happy. Like I was rattled which, you know, which was the best thing for me, though, at the time. It was like a kick in the balls. And um, I uh, used it as motivation from that point on. You know, I kind of got my head on straight. And, uh, you know, it, it was the best that ever happened to me, probably. Uh, it just gave me a little uh, shot in the arm and said, hey, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. Maybe you actually got to put the time in now. Right. That's uh, that's wild. I mean, I've, I've told – a pieces of my story on here and I can totally relate to that because I had a crappy draft year too 
well, you were there for my draft year, you know? And uh, so I went from 36 goals as a 16 year old to scoring 29 in my draft year. And uh, I was having all kinds of problems with Brian Maxwell trying to get on the ice. And like we were butting heads there. Or I don't even know if it was, we were butting heads. I think he was butting heads with my dad and then trying to navigate that draft year. And, you know, I think I went from being supposed to be top 10 to going 31 and, and I was, I was devastated too. Like I can totally relate to what you're saying because it's an expectation thing, right? And you do feel like selfish and you feel entitled like saying that now, but when you're, when you are expecting something different, you know, I mean, it is, the draft is all about expectations. If I would have thought I was going to go 50 and I went 31st, I would have been elated. Right. But when exactly. it's the other way around, it's like, holy smokes, it's a kick in the pants. And um, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from there. Cause I can relate to a lot of those things. You mean kind of being told how good you are having success trying to figure out how you're supposed to act in that environment, like how you're supposed to be. Um, because I think we get in our own heads and you stop just being a hockey player. You, you start becoming something else. And um, I'm not sure I was ever great at figuring that out, to be honest, at the end of the day, right? Like how to navigate that world. But uh, it was an interesting scenario. I can hear you. So you went 40. Um, how was, how was Brian? I've I mentioned Maxi. Did, did, what, what were your thoughts and memories of, of playing under him for, for the two and a half years or two years that you were there? Well, I'll tell you what, all right? With all the stuff that's going on nowadays with all this tough love and, you know, coaches getting obviously held accountable for some of their actions, uh, which by all means, some of the stuff that I've been hearing is, is offside and stuff. But I would not have made the NHL without Brian Maxwell scaring the crap out of me every day for two years. I'm telling you right now, there's no way. That guy leaned on me hard and maybe at times went overboard, but he taught me what it took to be a pro and what, more importantly, what made me tick as a player and made me have my best games, which is half the battle for these kids coming up, you know? For certain guys, it's their speed or skill that, you know, when you, when you look back and when you had, like, success or good games, you know, a lot of guys don't reflect on it when it's happening. You just kind of enjoy the moment. You know, you, you, never, you only reflect on it when you've had a stretch where you played like crap for two weeks and you're like, what's going on? But no one ever looks inside themselves when they had a five-point night or something. You know, why, why did I have that five-point night? But looking back, Maxi instilled in me at an early age – what made my game go was for me, myself, was I had to play like a prick and I had to have a burr up my butt to start a game. That's what made me tick, whether it was a hit or a fight or whatever. All my offense and everything came from that. And if I wasn't prepared to have that look in my eye or play like that, my game suffered and I didn't have success. So at a young age, thanks to him and him being up my butt, <laughs> Uh, you know, and scaring the death out of me, I learned to prepare to what made me successful. And I took that with me the rest of my career. I swear to God, till the, my 16th year, my last game, I prepared the same way as I did in junior with the stuff like, you know, be physical, get a hit, get your, you know, all these little things. I had it written on my wall in my closet that I followed what I learned from Spokane, basically. And it carried me all the way through my career. That's wild. Even, even that term you use, I'm sure, I'm sure Maxie didn't start it, but like when I hear burr up your ass, like that was him, like that's, that's him. And that's a pregame speech or that's him at practice. Like that's the, that's the total line that he would use. And it's amazing that you, you, you recite that now, like 20 some years later. Um, 
I agree, man. Like uh, with Maxi, there's a lot of things that, you know, I mean, he probably wouldn't be able to coach now the same way he did, you know, but he was a hell of a teacher. I thought he was a really great teacher. Like as far as teaching, teaching different aspects of the game, um, he definitely wanted us to do well. He had one way of doing it, you know, like he didn't know any other way to do it. And like he needed to figure that out, but um, he definitely wanted the best of his players. I mean, that was his motivation. He was trying to make you, he was trying to make you good. And I, I find it interesting too, because you obviously resonated with him because that was the way he played too, right? Like he, he had to have a burr up his ass and, and, and you now needing that burr up your ass to play well, like he, he got that. And I think that might've been one of the issues with me is not that I didn't play with necessarily an edge, but maybe not quite as much as he wanted or wished I would have. You know, and that's and, where it's hard. So fine line there, because certain guys don't tick like that. Like that's yeah. not what made you successful. You didn't have to play the burr up your ass. It was getting your feet moving earlier, yeah. getting your hands going, or whatever. But for me, it resonated with me because that's what did make me successful in the end. Was I had to have that edge, and if I didn't have that edge, I was just a guy. Yeah. And everything else seemed to flow if I didn't think about the points or goals and just played hard and heavy. That stuff just seemed to come with it. Right. So um, it was nice. I learned that out. And that's where a lot of guys fall through the cracks here moving forward as they chase their dreams of being an NHL player is the guys that maybe can't adapt to a new role or find out what makes them tick. And, you know, like you've been there, 100 camps and been up and down the Myers and all that. Every guy to training camp basically is the best player on their team or the captain of their team or, you know, but where do you fit in? You know, there's only six spots for top six forwards and stuff. You got to kind of adapt to that window and where the opportunity lies. And, you know, that's where I see in, in doing what I do now. It's the guys that struggle to adapt or figure out what makes their game go that don't quite get there. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I mean, we were fast forwarding a little bit, but I mean, since you brought it up, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add to it. The, the one thing, I think is interesting now and maybe with what you do now as director of player development there, like that maybe that is more communicated. Like I just remember like back, like you said, you mean up and down and trying to make camp and like no one, there was, there was one time where the LA Kings said to me, okay, you're, you would be our third or fourth line right wing. So we want you to put on some weight and like, that's the role you're going to fill. And, um, and that was like such music to my ears because it's like, okay, well then now I know what I need to do, right. How I need to play and, and not, you know, not worry about trying to score goals when I'm getting seven minutes a night, you know, like, yeah. like the, the, there was always like a confusion there. Like, if you want to be a penalty killer, tell me and I'll be a penalty killer. Right. But like, I, you, you come up into these environments, you don't really know what's expected or what is wanted. And it's not a resistance to do it. At least for me, it was. And it was just, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. But do yeah. you guys do that more now? Like saying, Hey, if you're going to make this team, you got to do this and be really good at whatever face-offs and penalty kill to get your foot in the door. I think the communication's gotten a lot better from our days. It was just like show up and play, and there wasn't that, uh, you know, open door policy, I guess, per se, or the feedback that you need. Now there's so much video and one-on-one meetings and, and all that stuff that I think it's laid out more clearly for a lot of guys now than maybe when we came up. It was just like go play hard and do what you do right. and hope for the best. Now it's like if you do this, this, and this, you'll have a chance. This is where we're looking. This is where the gap is. This is where you'll fit into this lineup. Here's what you got to do. Work on this, this, and this, and you'll have success. Yeah, which I think is amazing because then, like, the onus is really on the player. And 
you know, on a personal level, I mean, I'm totally accountable to wherever my career ended up and how it worked out. Uh, but it would have been like, I would have loved to have used my speed and my size and like filled that spot on a third or fourth line role for however long it would have taken, right. To try and fill what I really want to do, which was maybe score goals at that league. Right. But yep. it was, it was never presented that way. So it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a resistance. It was just an inability to like really live into that role. Right. And, uh, and now it seems like guys, well, the roles are res- less prevalent, it seems, actually. Like the depth from like first to fourth line, like everyone's kind of doing the same thing. You just don't have guys that run out and fight and, you know, yeah. check for 30 seconds and get off the ice. You know, so I think the game has changed that way a little bit where there's more versatility throughout that lineup. But or in interchangeability, I guess, is maybe a better word, right? Um, yeah. In our day, I mean, you couldn't have a fourth line right wing go and be a top six guy. None of those guys were capable of doing that, right? Um, now it's a little different, but let's go back to so your your scenarios. You I mean amazing junior career, like is like you know t- twice an all star, twice a world junior gold medal champion. Um, we should touch on that a little bit. Like, uh, is that still one of your fondest memories of your hockey career? Do being a part of those teams? Absolutely. You know, uh, I know you you got a chance to do it too. And there's nothing like representing your country, especially at a young age in such a prestigious tournament. I got to do it in Canada too, which was you know close to my hometown. We play games in Calgary, Edmonton, or Red Deer, so. It was home games for me, all my family and friends there, uh, playing in front of your country. And it was the year of the lockout, too. So people were starved for hockey. Um, those are some of my best hockey memories. That team we had in 95, like in Red Deer and stuff, oh, my God, it was, you know, it's, I think 90% of the guys played in the NHL. It was it was crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we ran the table and, you know, some of those friendships I still have to this day, you know, with guys on that team. It's, uh, it was special. It was really special to do it at home. Um, it was special to do it a second year. Like the first year I made the team as a 7th D, played sparingly. Still a fabulous experience to win a gold medal overseas, representing your country. But to get to do it again and be a bigger part of it, wear a letter, you know, uh, just run the table at home and win a gold medal in your hometown. And it was, uh, it was spectacular. I still yeah. love those. Yeah, we had a reunion there uh, two years ago at the world juniors. They did a reunion thing. Uh, and when it was in Vancouver, yeah. it was, uh, it was awesome. Like just to see the guys again and tell the stories and um, it was a blast, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. That team was special. I actually interviewed Wade Redden a, a few, a uh, little while ago and he was on that team with you and, there was something special about that year with the lockout that they, I mean, all the NHL players that were available were there in Canada, sold out barns, like just electric atmosphere. Um, and to be able to bring it home was super cool. And, and it's funny, anytime I talk to guys that have done that, meaning like win a gold medal and not even like of the, of the level maybe of that year, right? Like, which was a really special year. It, it still is like this pinnacle moment unless really, unless you've like won an Olympic gold or won a Stanley cup or something. Right. Because you know, there's, it's hard to win. And you do that on that level for your, for your country. It's, it's, it's a pretty big deal. I know you won gold there again with the, in the world championships. Um, would it, was that, is that as special, uh, in your mind or is there a different feeling to that? Um, it still is. It was a gold medal for your country, but I didn't grow up wanting to win a world championship gold medal. Like a lot of European players did before they played in the NHL. You know, my goal is to win a Stanley cup. The world junior thing was unbelievable because it's the best of the best, but that tournament falls when the Stanley cup playoffs are on. So it's a different feeling. It's almost like a, it's an accomplishment, but it's still a failure because you want to be playing for the Stanley cup. You know, it's like, 
not all the best players in the world. It's the guys that didn't make the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the best of that bunch. So what does that, you know, make me? Yeah. But it was still special. You know, it's still a gold medal. It's still for your country. It still meant a lot. I still have it. Uh, you know, I got the chance to play on that team with, you know, the Rob Blake and future Hall of Famers and stuff like that. You know, like yeah. there's still bonds and friendships you make there when you win. It doesn't matter what league it is or what, what, it, what it's for, but it definitely had a different feeling than the World Juniors or an Olympics right. or a Stanley Cup or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that I can relate to that. I mean, the, the best, because the World Junior is I mean, the best of what's available, for sure. That's the best of the best at that level, right? And you said it's a kind of a tear down. Well, it's a hell of a great, I mean, the talent level in that World Championships is great. And that must have been really eye-opening, too, to see how much talent is outside of the NHL, even, right? Oh, yeah. That, that's there. Yeah, the guys that, you know, this before, they all, like, rushed over here and everyone, all the best players were playing national. Like, there were still really good players in Europe that hadn't crossed over yet. You wouldn't know who they were, and you get out there, and you'd be like, where the hell is this guy playing? Like, right. How was he not over in North America? Like, You don't even know. A guy blows by, and you're like, who the hell was that? Where, you know, who's this guy? You look up at stats, and you're like, holy crap. Yeah. You know, he's a pretty good player. But, yeah, it was an eye-opener for sure. Uh, there's a lot of talent out there. Do you um I, I had Scott Nickel on the other day and, and he was talking and he's like, you know, everyone we sort of talked about it for a little bit, just saying like my envision when I was a young guy growing up, it was like the best seven hundred players in the world played in the NHL. And he's like, once I figured out that that was not the truth, he was like I realized like I had a chance. He was like, There's better players than me, but you have to be a part of the puzzle and you need to fit in. Like, do you I mean I, I think that's the truth. Is that do you feel that way as well? Absolutely. Like uh there's a million better players than me that I played with growing up that didn't make it. You, you have to A, be lucky. You B, got to work hard. And C, you got to find where you fit in the puzzle. Like I, I hit on before, like you got to find where you fit in. Depending on the organization, it could be something different. You know, different teams have different needs. And timing's a part of it too. Like sometimes you miss your window or sometimes you get lucky. Like I got really lucky to turn pro in 95 and the Islanders were going young. I, I didn't have to slug it out in the minors for three years. You know, I made the team out of camp and I stayed. And I got to learn from my mistakes and play. A lot of guys don't get that opportunity. They got to slug it out in the minors. So there is some timing involved to it, too. You got to be lucky. Uh, but, um, you know, for Scotty Nichols, a prime example of exactly like finding your niche and carving out an identity for yourself and making a career out of it. You know, he, he bombed around the minors. He was small. He was tough as hell. But he found out where he fit in and did whatever he could to stay there. And he had a really good NHL career. And he's done yeah. great for himself. From after. 27 <laughs> years old, right? That, I just, I mean, I played with him in Detroit. I just love his story. Like, unbelievable story to be to be in the minors that long at that size doing those types of things. And all of a sudden, he's he played 10 years in the show after that. Like, it was so such, such a great, great story. I, I love what you talk about there, like, and I think that is something that we haven't really talked about on the podcast before is that you mentioned the opportunity and, and being really transparent about your opportunity there in New York, because you can be 20 years old on a team, like maybe say the Red Wings at the time. And like, where are you going to be at 20 on that team? Right. But, or if you're 20 years old on a team like the Islanders and where you're expected to maybe not make the playoffs, expected that this kid's going to make some mistakes and we're going to throw him back out there again that would be an easier environment to dip your toe in the NHL when you're not necessarily worried about that next shift never coming again. 
you know, if something goes wrong on it. Did, did, uh, was it communicated to you kind of that way or do you just sort of realize that, Hey, this is where this team's at. And, and, you know, these coaches are going to put me back out on the ice. Yeah, there was some communication with that. You know, you're going to live and we're going to hold you accountable, but you're going to, you're going to get an opportunity to learn from your mistakes and, you know, go from there. And there is positives and negatives to that because you get a little more rope and you're not maybe uh, walking on eggshells. And sometimes that's a good thing to, to have to earn it more every, you know, I didn't feel that pressure of someone knocking on my door, you know, per se, and probably got complacent a little bit at times because of it, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas if someone's knocking on your door and you know, if you have a bad game, someone like the NFL where they can cut you next weekend, you're always on your toes. And there were spurts probably there. in my first couple of years where I didn't have that inside pressure outside you know someone knocking on the door and I I probably let it get to me again you know and let it go to my head a little bit and took my foot off the gas and you know it's no coincidence I got traded another three times or four times in my first five years pro probably because of that because I got too much rope and I took it for granted and you know it's it's not an easy road man it's not you know I, I made it and I stuck around a long time but there's a lot of bumps in the road and uh, it could have went another way. I'll tell you that for sure. Who was on that rookie team? Well, actually, I could bring it up. I mean, was that when you guys were had like the Charas and the Berard and like was, was, was a couple of, my, my first year? It was me. The young guys were like me, Tabertuzzi, Eric Lindros, uh, and then the next year, uh, not Eric, Berard, his brother. Yeah, Brett came. In. Yeah, we lived together. Yeah. And uh, Todd Bertuzzi was there that year. And we had a ton of older guys. Like, we had an older team. There were, there were some young guys. But as the years went on, like, my third year, Z, Z was in the system, Sedano. Uh, B was there uh, my second year. So, Brian, Eric Fico. Yeah. So, we had a, a good group of young guys. But we had a, you know, a great group of older guys. You know, um, you know uh, Richie Pilon, Mick Vakoda, Pat Flatley. uh I had Matt Schneider, I had Doug Huda, Brett Severn, all these guys that, Mike Hoff, guys that took me out of their wing, you know, like uh, Doug Huda was great with me, he coaches now, and he was one of my first roommates, and uh, he was a great pro to be around, you know, I was a young kid, and he, you know, we had our fun, but he held me accountable and showed me the ropes of what it took to be a pro, and um, I had a lot of guys that had a helping hand and me sticking around and all that stuff, I had some, really met some good people along the way. Was he, uh, was Doug Huda a letter at that point? Like, was he, uh, do you remember who the captains were on that team? Uh, Pat Flatley, my first year, was the captain. Um, and we had, uh, we had Pilon, we had Derek King, who was great. He coaches now in the minors, too. Yeah. Kinger was a great, great assistant captain. You know, we had some older guys that had been around. Uh, Tommy Fitzgerald, I played with for a little bit. He was That's funny. He was I played with a lot of those guys you're mentioning, like Huffer and Fitzgerald Tom and had, King. You know, and- we had some- I, Wendell Clark was there my first year. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had some, some names, you know, there were some, some um, really heavy leadership guys to lean on and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, I got a good dose of, uh, of leadership qualities from guys just sitting in that room and listening to guys and watched how they prepare and stuff. Do you remember uh, some guys like have that influential kind of person when they, when they first come in and kind of, like you said, teach them how to be a pro, but also maybe teach 
how to act when you get a little older in the league and how to treat some of these young guys. Do you, did you take that with you? Like how, how, how Hoods uh, kind of took care of you there? And did you try and do that yourself later on? Absolutely. Like I took like from Hoods and all these guys, Brent Severn and Chief and Nick and um, Stevie. I remember like I say this at my development camp every year and you know how this is. We run a development camp. You finally get to bring all your prospects in and, you know, we're not, I'm not, at least in my opinion, development camps, it's in June or July. I'm not there to bag guys. You know, you're not supposed to be peaking in June or July. It's more about teaching them what it takes to be a pro and how to get there and how to stay there. And, you know, all the little things, never mind on the ice, the stuff that goes into maturing and preparing and, you know, giving yourself the best opportunity. And, you know, I think you probably felt the same way when you go to first camp, you know, all you want to do is fit in, you know, you're an 18 year old kid and you, you know, you're sitting in your stall and you don't know a soul and you're looking around the room and you got, you know, Wendell Clark and all these guys there. And you just want someone to talk to you or take you out, you know, take you out to lunch or something. I remember uh, Steve Thomas took me for lunch my first camp and just made me feel like, okay, you know, he, he took me out, had a beer, had lunch. And, you know, I wasn't like a shunned rookie, you know, and I remember that stuck with me. And I made a point of that, like literally every camp that I was at when I had made it, I would always take a group of the young guys and either take them for lunch or take them to dinner. You know, the worst thing is when you're a kid and you're, you know, you go to train camp and you're on the road for two weeks and you get a roommate that just chucks his bag in a room and you're left there sitting there on the edge of your bed. Like, what do I do? You know? Yeah. So I always made a point, whoever I got hooked up with at camp or whatever, wherever I went, they went. I always took them to dinner, lunch, anything like you got to show them, you know, and make them feel like part of the group. I was never in that hazing crap and, you know, pack my bag rookie. I was always the outgoing guy that, you know, I was in those shoes and you just want to feel like part of it. You want to feel like, you know, you're part of it and guys like you and, you know, bring you under their wing. So I always try to take that with me. I still try to express that to these guys. Now, if you see a guy sitting by himself, don't, you know, take him to lunch with you. Don't leave a guy sitting in the room by themselves. You know, so last thing you want to, be is the guy sitting in your room like what's everyone doing no one calls you or whatever so that's something I still try to instill to this day that I learned from those older guys back at camps good for you man it makes such a big difference I mean that was and Ty Ty Domi did nothing mean to me he wasn't rude but he was my roommate on the road when I got traded to Toronto and uh and yeah I mean he was nice but it it wasn't like it definitely wasn't hey pods you want to come or go or you know it was like he'd come in you know he'd check his phone and kind of he'd be off and and he was cordial but it, it definitely didn't feel like a part of anything necessarily right and uh and like you said it's hard enough to navigate that environment you know just as an athlete right how to perform on the ice let alone trying to navigate the social um consequences of what's going on outside of the rank right and fitting into a team and with what you with your peers and being young in the room and i mean there's all these all these things that are kind of hurdles that you got to get over as a young guy um that you some guys forget about when they get older because they've been there and you know and some guys get comfortable or they don't care or maybe they're just not wired that way either right i, I really no judgment there but i can see how that would make a big difference if there is somebody in your room that's uh being accommodating and wants to wants to go out with you I, I have to ask about Zdeno because I do not know him uh, at all, but I've really enjoyed watching his career and watching his progression and watching how he stays relevant and kind of the leader that he's turned into. From what I remember of him as a young guy, like I didn't think he was very good. Like he, there was, he was awkward and like, 
there was a lot of like to be what he is now like what what is your memory of him there as a rookie coming in there like would you have ever expected what you see now you know what he was a he was a specimen like off the ice i've never seen anyone work harder uh, at their craft and want it more uh was he pretty to watch when he was younger no by no means he was awkward he was like bambi but he worked at it and the career that this guy's carved out for himself just shows you sheer hard work and perseverance and um preparation and wanting it and believing in yourself um you know norris trophy stanley cup still playing at 40 whatever the hell he is 44 he's a leader he you know um just shows the guy the way like when he came up he was just a big young kid that could barely skate but was strong as a bull and worked extremely hard at his game and he stuck with it and obviously became you know he's going to be a hall of famer he's you know i still see z from time to time in the ranks or whatever and he is still the gentleman he was when he was a 20 year old kid uh just the epitome of a professional yeah no i, I love i love i love his story and to hear that do you think that did he kind of get his carve because he was st still a pretty high pick i think like into the double into the nhl like maybe a second round or something i don't quote me on that but again watching his skill set like I, I didn't see where that was coming from but was he like do you think he was touted or drafted as like a guy that was going to fight like that was sort of his scenario and be like a five six guy is was that his projection do you think yeah i never saw him in junior but you know seeing him at the first couple camps i would say he was probably projected as a third pairing d who was tough as nails and you know would uh, hold everyone accountable on the ice and right you know i don't think anyone projected him to be a one of the best shutdown D in the league, defensive defenseman, you know, like, yeah. uh, but he worked at it. He got better. He fine tuned his game. He, you know, he found his comfort zone. You know, he realized he didn't have to be Bobby Orr, but you know, he still to this day, he's very effective at what he does. You know, his ice time has been dialed back a little bit, you know, he is 44 years old, but you know, he's still hard to play against tough as nails. No one wants to go in the corners with him. He makes the simple, easy plays. Yeah. He gets up ice, he blocks shots, and he's just a leader. And he's yeah. a winner, obviously, you know. Yeah. No, I love what they got going there, Boston. That's a hard team not to like. Yeah, I mean, I know the Toronto fans, and there's, there's some people that listen to this, but, I mean, that's just a good team. Like, it's a good team. Like, they got they got that going on there. And I like – I've heard them talk about that, too, where they I – mean, we talked about the young guys already, like the, that some of these older guys, like the Bergerons and Charas and Marchands or whoever they may be, will get assigned, like some of these younger guys that come in, almost as like, yeah, an assignment. Like, this is your guy, right? Like, you make sure that he's comfortable and – and uh, and make him a part of things. And I mean, that just tells you, I mean, the bottom guy's got to feel as important as the top guy or like he belongs. Right. And I mean, they've, they've developed a way to do that there. Yeah. Um, so that first trade, let's, let's get into it. So you mean you're three years in, have you guys made the playoffs at that point? With no, the not, even, not even close. Not even close. Okay. Yeah. So that, and so that in and of itself, which you, I mean, you've experienced the playoffs later in your career and with different teams, but like, uh, I noticed that even from being involved in the Detroit Red Wings camp and not being uh, and being around the Florida Panthers when we went to the Stanley Cup final. I was a black ace on that team, but like, it's like two different leagues that you're in almost. Like the teams that are competing and the teams that aren't. Like it's it's such a different feeling and such a different culture. And so, so you were in the NHL and an NHL player played three seasons, hadn't experienced what the NHL playoffs was like, hadn't really experienced what it's like to be on a winner, 
and then now you uh, you get the call and you're going to Vancouver. Uh, what was that like and going to a team that was a bit more competitive at that time? That trade was devastating. Like I had no idea it was coming. Um, so I'm just starting my third year. Mike Milbury calls me in and names me captain. I'm 22 years old. Um, I'm like, oh, awesome. I was jacked up, you know, like 22 years old. I'm captain of the team. We got a good young team coming up. Um, you know, we start the season terribly. Um, I put a ton of immense pressure on myself trying to be that guy at that age. Uh, probably wasn't ready for it and internalized it all and my game suffered I was not very good uh, just from me putting so much pressure on myself thinking I was the captain I had to be something more than I I was yeah. and my game suffered terribly I had a horrible season um, that being said though you know I don't I don't think it warranted a trade at that point but you know the bottom line is winning you know I thought when I got named captain I was going to be a lifer there Right. You know, and all of a sudden, I literally had just flown like four of my best friends down from Calgary for like Thursday to Monday. You know, we had a game on Thursday and Saturday. Come hang out in New York. Let's hang out. Um, we play Thursday night, take the boys for some beers. Phone rings the next day after practice. My buddy answers it and he's like, It's Mike Milbury. My first thought was, Oh crap. Someone saw us out last night. I'm in trouble again. You know, like, well, I busted again. You know, yeah. boys are out. Uh, pick up the phone. He's like, uh, we trade you to Vancouver. Uh, you're on an eight o'clock flight tonight. Basically, thanks for your time. <laughs> I was like, pure shock. Like, threw the phone through the wall. Like, didn't even know where to start. Just a puddle of tears. Like, a mess. Hopped on a plane. Flew all the way to Vancouver. Played Saturday night. And then got on a plane and flew all the way home because it was like Olympic break in 98. So I had a week to get my stuff together. I came back to New York. But the rest of that season, I was a, I was a write-off, man. I was a mess. I was, you know, doubting myself, whatever. All the yeah. above. Uh, buried myself into Vancouver's nightlife. And <laughs> I was a mess, man. I was a mess. Let's dig into that a little bit, though, because there's so many layers to that caver. So you're, you're a 22-year-old captain in the NHL. And rightfully so, you mean, you know, because you were, you were deemed captain worthy, obviously you're going to take, make this, like take this serious or so you wouldn't have got it in the first place. Right. So you're, you're trying to be somebody that you said, maybe you had to, you're trying to reinvent yourself unnecessarily. Right. Um, and of course, all the signs are pointing to like being a long time Islander at that point, you've already played three years and you're the captain of 22, you know, like I, I could imagine what was going on in your head. And then, Mike Milbury calls, which I'm sure you have ama some amazing Mike Milbury stories from the ones I've heard. But like, do you like, was it like, that was the same phone call I got getting traded from Florida at 20 years old. But I mean, I was a guy that was in the minors and I was like, wow, that was a minute and a half call. And they just told me that I got traded, you know, like I would, I would expect they would have given a little more respect to the captain, but it was just, see ya. Thanks for your service. You're out. Literally, that was the just of it. You're on an eight o'clock flight tonight. Literally like, thanks for your time. And me and me and Mike had a good relationship. Like, you know, he's a hard ass and he's done really well for himself. But, you know, me and him, we had a good relationship. Hence, I was the captain. We had a good relationship. I don't know if he saw a little bit of himself the way he played, like in me or whatever, but we had a good relationship. He, you know, he became GM there the first year that I had made the team when we drafted uh, Wade Wren, then we traded for Burrard and all that stuff. So, um, 
he was hard on me, but we had a really good relationship. And, you know, just, I just felt blindsided, you know, cause at no point did the thought ever cross my mind that I was going to get traded. I know that we weren't doing very well and stuff like that, but the thought had never crossed my mind and to have it thrown at me and then have to go suit up in a different place. And it was just, it, it was devastating. Like, you know, you talk about mental health and stuff like that wasn't even discussed back then, but I was a mess. Like looking back now, like, those next three months in van, I was a disaster. Like, right. It's amazing to me that I still figured it back out and hung around longer because it could have went the other way. Very easy. Right. I could have been out of the league in a hurry. How um, did that go for you? So, I mean, you sent, because Linden came back in that trade and, and, you know, Bertuzzi. So, I mean, that was a, that was a big trade. You were the captain. Linden was the captain at that time too, right? So these two teams traded captains. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, but that's when Mess came in there and they kind of, uh, oh, they were kind of moving them. They kind of were pushing Trevor out. Mass was captain. You know, oh, so it right. was a and a half to come in. You know, obviously we could trade it, but Trevor Lennon's an icon in Vancouver, rightfully, rightfully so. And then we could trade it for him. So all of a sudden, people may dislike you just to start with because you got traded for, you know, an icon and, you know, yeah. one of the Vancouver legends. So it wasn't easy to step into that. Obviously, and then uh, you know we had Keen in there. We had a spectacular team, but they had made like a hundred trades. Like it was, I think when I got there, we had ten new guys like in a hotel, like literally. Mike wow. had just pulled the trigger and traded like everyone. And on paper, our team was like ridiculous, but we weren't even. We were like fifteen points out of the playoffs. It's amazing to me how bad that team was with the amount of talent we had on it. It was crazy. Right. How was um. You mentioned being a, being a mess or a puddle, and we don't have to get into into specifics of what that means. You know, you said you're you're going out a little bit, and you're having a hard time dealing with it. Did was there anyone around you then, like as far as like the team was like a coach talking to you, or like was anyone trying helping you through that, or did you just feel that you were kind of on your own with it? Uh, I internalized it, I'm sure, but you know, the coaches were great. We had great assistant coaches with Mike. It was Stan Schmiel, who's with the Canucks he was awesome and Glenn Hanlon who used to play there too they were great assistant coaches and good guys but the organization was kind of a mess at that point like they made a ton of trades uh, you know Mike was Mike I liked Mike you know he's a strong brash personality but we got along really well if you played hard for him and you know and stood up for yourself he liked you so you know we got along fine I think we had a FU fight one of the first couple of weeks I was there and then he liked me after that so I played a lot and stuff like that, but we had a young team too. So right. we were all kind of going through it together and, you know, mess was great, but he was winding down, you know? So, and we didn't have a good team. So it was like, we were out of the playoffs and there's really no direction, you know, like there was yeah. really nothing to play for. It was, it was, it was a tough situation to be in. Um, I've heard two different stories with Mark and I don't know what you want to get into or not, but like I've heard, I've talked to guys that think that he was like, what is kind of portrayed in the media as this, like one of the best captains to ever grace professional sports. And I've talked to other guys that have said, honestly, the almost the exact opposite. And uh, it, to me, that just blows my mind. Like how there can be that, that type of contrary opinion of, about somebody like that. Do you have any, do you have a, do you have a, a stake in the ground with, with either side there that you'd want to talk about? Well, you know, I can't comment on the mess that won six cups previous to me playing with him. Obviously, 
he's one of the best players ever, a legend in the game, played on some great teams, but also went to New York and built a team around himself and won a cup for an organization that had won a cup in whatever amount of years. Um, but it, like I said, his career was winding down. I don't think I got a glimpse of the Mark Messier that you saw in the nineties or the early nineties. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's fair to, it's unfair to, you know, put a label on cause he played for so long that I only saw a blink of it the right. year and a half I was there. Uh, it was an honor to play with him. It, you know, it, how, how many guys can say they play the guy that won six cups, and, sure. you know, come on, seriously. So he, he was definitely a leader. He did, uh, he did hold guys accountable and stuff, but I think our team was so dysfunctional in what was going on with all the trades and there was no like uh, unity that there were so many new faces that it was hard to be a leader in that group too. Uh, right. It, it kind of, I got there and it was just, it was a mess. It was a mess. Yeah. It was a mess. Which, I mean, kind of a short tenure there, like you said, you got, I mean, that first trade happened, you were still 22 years old, which is, I mean, third year. I mean, that's, People forget. I mean, try and try and look back when you're 50, like people listening and what you were doing when you were 22, right? Like to be a captain of an NHL team and get traded and have your life uprooted like that and have to deal with a new city and new players. And like, there's a lot to manage there to try and figure out. And then now you're going across the country again um, to Chicago. Like were you more, I don't think you're ever ready for a trade, but was there talk of it this time at least that maybe you were, you were on the block? Yeah, that one was a lot easier. So that, that summer after I got traded there, they, they cleaned house and they brought in Brian Burke to be GM and they brought in Mark Crawford to be coach. Uh, I had a contract dispute, so I missed the first uh, 13 games or whatever. Uh, but played that year, I had a pretty good year, reined myself back in. We had a good young team, uh, really good young team, like moving forward, you know, Eddie Jovanowski, Matias Olin, Marcus Naslin, Todd Bertuzzi, all these guys coming up. So a, a good young team. Uh, but that summer in my exit meeting with uh, Berkey, he called me in and he, he was totally upfront and honest with me and said, uh, if you make it through this summer, you're going to be here a long time. So he kind of was, had laid the groundwork that maybe something's in the works here. And obviously that turned out to be the summer that he made the big trade for the Sedin twins. Yeah. Uh, so he called me a week before the draft and said, hey, we got something in the works. The odds are pretty good you're going to get traded. And then he called me the night before the draft and said, you're getting traded. So there was a great line of communication. I have the utmost respect for Berkey and how he handled it. You know, as a player, you just want to be told the truth. Whether it's good or bad, you don't want to be left in the dark and blindsided, kind of like my first trade. Yeah. And uh, Berkey was awesome about that. He kept me in a loop the whole way. Uh, I knew what's happening. It's still not easy to get traded, but it's a lot easier when you know what's coming. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I think well, the trade worked out pretty damn well for, for them, obviously getting yeah. the city brothers and the careers that they had. Well, and, and not to mention it's easier when you're not in the middle of a season, right? Like, yeah. you know, like that's a massive difference too. What, so how, how, lay that one out for me. So you were a part of them being able to draft the Sedins back to back. Well, I got traded for, I guess it, I guess it's the third pick, the third overall pick or whatever. So I went to Chicago for their draft pick and they ended up taking uh, the Sedins two and three. Oh, and, wow. 
Yeah, so it's a pretty big trade to be a, be a part of. Obviously, those guys are going to be in the Hall of Fame one day and had, you know, prestigious careers. Um, you know, to go the other way in that trade, you know, looking back, it's, it's an honor. You know, that, So that was, so it was you for that trade. And so then, and I guess Chicago would have gotten their their first round pick then or their, their yeah exactly one? I, I believe i don't know who that turned out to be i guess they flopped picks or whatever, yeah, whatever. Right. but uh yeah so i went the other way and uh spent a whole one year in chicago and <laughs> how, how was that experience did you like i mean people seem to love playing there did you, did you enjoy playing there uh my favorite city in the world bar none i only played there one season but uh i spent six off seasons there in the summer, even when I was playing for the Leafs, uh, previous to having children, uh, Chicago was our home in the summer. Uh, love the people, love the vibe, just outgoing, uh, you know, great atmosphere, kind of like the cleaner, nicer, friendlier version of New York with the same amenities. Um, we loved our time there, you know, hockey wise, it sucked. Um, I missed the window of where they were, you know, selling out buildings and, all that stuff. We, we weren't very good, but, um, you know, to play for another original six team, uh, was, you know, a dream come true for sure. That's wild. So yeah, I mean, look at the hockey DB. So now like that's your six seasons in, you haven't played in a playoff game yet. Nope. <laughs> Going for that record. <laughs> Did that like, I mean, obviously, I mean, you're a competitive guy, I played with you and you were super successful in junior and you know, all that stuff. Like, was that starting to kind of weigh on you? Like, do you, and I'm not sure how it can because it's not an individual personal thing, but like, were you just dying to get in there? Yeah. You just want to win and have a chance to playoffs or, you know, the cream of the crop rise and you want to elevate and you want to have a chance to battle. You know, every kid grows up wanting to battle for the Stanley cup and to not even get a chance to do it. My first six years is, embarrassing like it yeah it, it ate at me for sure there's only so many times you can go to the world championships and stuff you know like summers are long enough as it is yeah and um you know and then self-doubt comes in still you still don't you know i've been on now i've been on uh new york vancouver chicago i'm on three teams in five years or whatever, four years and you start to question your own game your own skill set and you know what am I doing wrong? Why do I keep getting traded? You know, why do these people not like me? What, you know, what can I fix? What, what do I need to do to stick in one place for a while? How do I win? All this stuff. It, yeah. it, it eats at you for sure. Yep. At that point, had you, you said previous to kids, were you with your, with your wife at this time or were you, you take, taking these trades and moving around solo? So we dated and uh, my wife moved in with me um, in uh, December of 99 when she got her master's degree from ASU. So she was partayed to the Chicago trade. Um, gotcha. We were in Vancouver. That was her first actual trade being a part of. Uh, she was ecstatic because uh, moving to Vancouver, coming from New York, never been in Canada, was a real tough transition for her. And you know how the hockey world can be, stepping into a wives' room and <laughs> what may have you and not being able to work because she was American and she's a, she's a go-getter. Like she's still, she's getting her doctorate degree right now. Like she's still working and yeah. to come to Canada and give up what she had just done, you know, being a teacher, having a master's degree, not being able to do anything with it yeah. was, uh, was hard on her to say the least, you know, I'm going on road trips and she's trapped in a one bedroom in Vancouver with no friends and nothing to do. It's, uh, it's not easy, not easy on the girls for sure. So, um, yeah, we started, uh, 99, we started living together. Right. 
Cause I, that's a, I mean, I, I've thought about that. I mean, in my whole career, I didn't have uh, I mean, a, a serious girlfriend and definitely no kids. Right. And I couldn't imagine doing that with family in tow and kids in school and minor hockey. And, you know, I mean, all the stuff that comes with, with being a dad, um, it even adds more complexity to it. We, we end up in Toronto and like what amazing years there and that whole scenario. I'd love to like, so Toronto, so you, so you get traded again. You, and now you're, now you go to Toronto and, and were you, what, what were your, were you excited to go there? You think that was going to be a good, good, good place? Yeah. So let me, this is a good trade story for you. This one. So now it's getting like old hat for me to get traded. That's <laughs> not bothered me anymore. So I go through training camp. Uh, let me just rewind here. So that summer, uh, this is a funny story. That summer, the year I held out in Vancouver, I signed a, a two plus one deal. Uh, so the third year was a club option. Um, so I got traded to um, Chicago. Uh, I play that season in my second year under that contract. That summer, it's a club option. Uh, they chose not to pick up my option and take me to arbitration, which I had never done before. Um, so we go to arbitration and you have to go sit in this meeting. And I don't know if you ever went through that, but um, it's a painful experience. So our lawyer, tell you how bad you are essentially, right? Agent goes first. And by the end of the hour, you feel like, you know, how have I not won a Norse trophy or, you know, why is my Jersey not retired? And then the next hour it's, you're literally in tears and you're like, how am I not in the East coast league? Like they just <laughs> eat you down, like how bad you are. So uh, we end up winning the arbitration case. So I don't like to talk money or numbers, but basically my option was for 1.85 million and they turned it down and we won the arbitration case and I got 2.15 million. So that was like a kick in the nuts for the Blackhawk organization. The fact that now they're paying me more. Right. So there had been whispers, you know, back in that day, if you win an arbitration case, a lot of guys get moved because they don't like dealing with, you know, whatever. So I go to camp, I go through training camp, and there have been whispers that, uh, you know, I'm getting traded because of the arbitration thing or whatever. So I go through all the exhibition games. And after our last exhibition game, a couple of Russian players on the team, Alexei Zamnov and Boris Mirnov, uh, we're having beers after the game, whatever, in a hotel room. And they're like uh, – you're getting traded tomorrow. Like we know uh, Alexander Karpatsev just called us, said he's getting traded to the Blackhawks. So they told me first that I was getting traded. This was the night before. So I was kind of prepared, I knew. So the next day the phone rings and it's, uh, our new GM at the time was uh, Mike Smith. They just fired uh, uh, Murph from Anaheim. And Mike Smith had taken over, who I do not have a relationship whatsoever, barely know the guy. Uh, he phones me up the next day. We're back in Chicago. I answer the phone, and it's Mike Smith, who I barely know. And he says, uh, we traded you. And I said, okay, where am I going? And he says, uh, we traded you to Quebec. I'm like, excuse me? Quebec doesn't even have a team, okay? Like, he was trying to be funny. Like, we have, like, this pre-existing relationship or something, like, I thought it was the biggest dick move ever. Like, I don't know the guy, you, you know, you're playing with, this is my life here. Right. And I'm, okay. Uh, ha ha. Where am I getting trade Toronto? I just hung the phone up. That was it. So off to Toronto, I go early October, 
uh, was ecstatic to go to Toronto because I knew they've been in the conference finals playoff team. First time I'm actually going to a team that's not like rebuilding or, you know, trying to get to the playoffs. This is an established team with the likes of Matt Sundin and, and so on. And I was ecstatic. Obviously Toronto, everyone grows up in Canada watching the Maple Leafs on TV. So uh, I couldn't have been happier and more excited to, to get to Toronto. That's awesome. And uh, Mike, Mike Smith, like, he was he the he was the GM in Toronto too at one point, correct? Yeah. Was that so, before yeah. then or after? I'm getting my my timeline wrong. Before, I think. Uh, okay. I think it's before. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was before too because he was Fletcher traded for me, and then Fletcher got fired that summer, which was really great for for my career, and and, and he came in, and uh, yeah. yeah, he was a really different guy. And, yeah, and, he was uh, like a werewolf, and he he was into like art and stuff. Yeah, yeah and, and and yeah, and and I I think we have the both the same memory of him because he didn't seem to want to get me into the into that lineup very quickly, so I, I didn't like him very much. He ended up trading me as, as as well, but. Hey there! Just want to take a quick break from the conversation to remind you that if you're enjoying these conversations and with these amazing guests that I've been bringing on, that. There's a lot that goes into it, and the best way you can support this conversation and this podcast is to share it. Uh, you know, personal marketing is always the best. So, for you to share it on your social media, for you to talk to people uh, about the episode and to say, hey, you should check this out, that really makes a big difference. It really helps to grow it, it really helps to get it in front of more people because I do think these are conversations that matter. I think some of these conversations are going, you know, beyond the lines of the game and really grounding uh, the game in a really human aspect and a really human element. So uh, I enjoy these conversations. I know you do too. I really appreciate the personal feedback that I get. But uh, if you can, if you can expand that feedback into your own social network, that's really how this thing is going to grow. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. And let's get you back to the episode. Um, so you're in Toronto, so you're in the, you know, the center of the hockey universe, according to uh, many Canadians, a lot of eyes are on you. What was, what did that feel like playing there? Cause I mean, I have my own experience with that, of course. And, and you came in a little different ways. You, you were established NHLer at that point. Um, but what was that like stepping into that locker room and into that city? It was uh, cool as hell, man. Like, it's the hockey. I didn't realize it was the hockey mecca of the world or how it was until we actually went to the playoffs and you went around in the playoffs and to see how the city reacts to just winning one round was, uh, was unbelievable uh, to be a part of. I think every kid should experience playing in a hockey market like that, whether it's Montreal or Toronto uh it's definitely not an easy place to play a lot of guys can't take that pressure because there's outside pressure 24 7 there you cannot get away from hockey uh it's a big fishbowl wherever you go whatever you do all eyes are on you everyone knows who you are but it's a special place uh and i absolutely love my time there so the transition of like getting in and there wasn't, I mean, you, you felt comfortable enough in your own game. Like you said, you'd just gone through the arbitration though. Like you'd been kind of ripped apart. Now you're stepping into this new scenario. Were, were you, were you okay? Like with that from a mental kind of game of like get, just getting in there and, and doing your job? Yeah. You know what? I went in uh, really positive and just wanted to find a home. You know, I bounced around so much, you know, five teams, and whatever, four or five teams and whatever, five years. Like it was, it was a lot. 
like I said, I just wanted to find a place that I fit in and could spend some time. And, you know, I was really lucky to have, uh, you know, sick leadership guys to like Matt Sundin was unbelievable. Like I've never played with a, a leader like him to be able to follow what he did and just watch that guy, how he conducted himself on and off the ice. And you talked about before, like make guys feel like they're part third and fourth line guys. That's a guy to me that when I played with, he made everyone in the group feel like they were the biggest piece of the puzzle. And I learned a ton from that guy, just being around him every day. And our teams just, uh, you know, got better and deeper. And I had a good solid first year there. Um, and then my second year, I really, really kind of took off. I got an opportunity to play in a power play and me and Caberlet partnered up and, my game just kind of took off from there and it, you know, it, it really started to evolve. Yeah. Thomas was a great guy. I played with him in, in the rock there. Uh, real nice guy. Great demeanor, real, real talented kid. Um, was Markov there with you for a while too, Danny? Yeah, Danny Markov. What a beauty he yeah. is. Yeah, he was there he too was... with me. So I have experience with him. But let's talk about well, two things I want to touch on. One, your first playoff series. So now you I mean you do get to the playoffs. Like you said, you win, you win the first round and, and, you got yeah so you didn't get through the second round what was what was that like your first like did you have the butterflies like was it like you were you were a kid stepping on the ice for the first time again like what did that feel like in those nhl playoffs oh my god it was was seriously butterflies yeah i think i was sick to my stomach the first game uh hadn't had that feeling in a long time and uh you know the atmosphere and the battle of ontario like we faced ottawa that year like we did every year i was there but uh just the city and the feeling and, you know, like I said, winning that, that series and, you know, we lost to Jersey in the next round, but uh, just getting that experience and, you know, to build on uh, was a great start. Finally, it had taken so long that, uh, you know, it was, it was awesome. Uh, it, it was great just to score in their first playoff goal and stuff. It was, I, I still remember like it was yesterday. That's so cool. Um, and yeah, you touched on Matt's and, and Matt's, I mean, I was 20 at the time when I got traded there and you kind of forget how young he actually was too. You know, like the hockey world is crazy when it, how it does that. Five years seems like 20, you know, um, but he was there and he was the captain and, and I just couldn't believe I mean, how big, plus he's 6'4", and he's blonde, right? And he's walking around that city as the captain of the Leafs. Like, I couldn't imagine being Matt Sundin in that city and how gracious he was uh, and how professional he was in doing it. You know, he just had that calm presence about him. He was very professional, was able to still go out in a way that was, you know, appropriate, right? And and keep the guys, uh, keep the guys around him and stuff. Yeah, he was... I can see why everyone has such great things to say about him in Toronto because he really did. He was a, you know, he was just a great captain for that team. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I, I learned so much from him and like moving forward as the years went on, the the teams that we put together and, you know, it's no coincidence that, like I said, my career started to finally find its place there in Toronto, but it's because of guys like Matt Sundin and Gary Roberts and Joe Newendike and those leaders that just did everything the right way on and off the ice and you know brought guys along for it just to be a part of that and be a sponge around it you know it's like when I look back now and you know I talk about this stuff at my dev camps like I said before but I thought I was working hard off the ice and doing the right things to be a successful pro but I wasn't even close until 
I got to see the likes of Matt Sundin and Gary Roberts and what they did off the ice and how they conducted themselves and what went into being a pro and why they had so much success. I wasn't even close. Um, so I literally like seeing Gary Roberts and how he worked out and the, the stuff he put in his body and stuff. I literally latched onto that guy for a whole summer, one summer and just sponged him. And, you know, all like, that's when I had my most success. That's when I scored 17, 19 goals, whatever got, you know, all this stuff started happening because a learning from them, but B putting the time in and actually doing the work and becoming a pro. And, you know, it's not easy and you think you're doing it. And sometimes you have to be around pros to be a pro. Yeah. And I always tell the kids, if you want to be the best train with the best or, you know, be around them. So um, I couldn't have had any of the success or the career I had without learning from those guys and what they did and what made them successful. And it's no coincidence why they had the careers they had is because of what they did on and off the ice and how they conducted themselves. That's amazing to hear that. And like, just for perspective, people here listening, I mean, like this is a guy who's now played seven seasons in the NHL, right. And, and was a captain and around great players, but like, it's not, it's not as common as you think. Like once you see it, right. Like you said, you, you need to be able to see it and like understand that, holy shit, there is a whole different level to what's happening here. And there's a whole different level for me available you know and I and I talk about that now a lot is like the standards the personal standards that we develop it, it's it's crazy where they come from right like we think we're a hard worker or we think we're working hard or we think we're doing the right thing but our environment matters with that right it's like if you're not ever exposed to Gary Roberts you might go to you might you might have retired thinking yeah man I was one of those guys that put in all the time and did all the work right but now you've seen it and now it brought out something else in you that you might not have seen otherwise I think that's such a powerful thing like to listen to and to hear um Cause yeah, find it right. Find that within you. And my God, I wish I, I, I wish I, I found that guy too. Cause I was, I was, I sounds like I was like you, right. I thought, yeah, fuck, I put in my work. Right. I did. I did a good job, but I was never really trying to scratch the ceiling on, you know, where Jason could get to. Right. And yeah. it'd be fun to try and do that. Um, and those guys that you're talking about bring out the best in everybody else. And that's why these teams have success. It's like, no, it's not a secret. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. And I always tell these kids now, I'm like, you got to get out of here. The easy thing to do is go home every summer and be with your buddies and live at home and train with your mom, you know, whatever. Your mom cooks your meals and stuff. That's the easy thing to do. And I did that in my first few years. But then that one year I went to the World Championships with, uh, with Rob Blake and got to play with him. And this guy's coming off a Norris Trophy. And I put myself out there to him and he was such a nice guy and stuff. So that following summer, I up and moved to Manhattan Beach in California, and I trained with Rob Blake, Jeremy Roenick, Chris Chelios, and I got out of my comfort zone. I left home for the first time. I started chasing that thing. But even then, there was still, I got traded again. There were bumps in the road and stuff, and I didn't really find, you know, that level of preparation or what needed I needed until I met Rob's and Matt's and those guys, and they instilled it in me like that. Those years I had in Toronto and playing with Thomas Caverlet, who was one of the most underrated defensemen of all time, I think. Like, I, you know, all the, all the success I had is a direct result of playing with that guy for that long. Like, he was, uh, you know, I was the yang to his yang. You know, like, he could skate pucks and see the ice and make passes. And I was heavy and physical and could shoot the puck. It was like a perfect combination of stuff. And 
you know, I, I thrived on playing with him and playing with those guys and feeding off of them. But just the leadership qualities that those guys had off the ice and how they brought teams together and showed guys the way and said, jump on my back and I'll take you there type thing. is just, you know, the stuff legends are made of. Those guys were, were awesome. In your second year, you get to see the 20 games. You, you got to the third round that year, I believe, if I recall correctly. What was, uh, what was that run like? And who did – was it L.A. that year? Who, who did you guys – no, who did you lose to that year in the, in the oh, final? No, we lost to Carolina in like three or four overtime games in the conference final. Uh, but that was the year that we had uh, – so we opened the playoffs against the Islanders. And seven-game series, that was the hardest – hockey and most physical series that I was ever involved in in my career. It was death. They had that Steve Webb, Eric Heron. Steve Webb was like literally killing people, putting people on stretchers every game in Nassau Coliseum. I've never seen it like it. It was crazy. And we got the crap beat out of us, man. I don't know how we got through it, but we did. We came through in seven games. We lost Mats. We lost Tux along the way. Mike Pekka blew his ACL. That's when Tux hit him low. It was a fight to the death, and we won that. I don't know how, but we did. And then once again, we meet up with Ottawa, and they got a great team again, you know, 100-plus points. You know, they got Chara, Red, and you know, all these guys. And they faced their kryptonite again in the playoffs. And we took them seven games, and we beat them again in seven. And then by the time we got to the third round, like Matt's was out for this whole thing. He broke his wrist. And this was the year that Gary Roberts, he was like 38 years old and he played like he was like 20 years old. Him and Alan McCauley were like, I'd never seen anything like it. That playoff series, Gary Roberts was like a man possessed. He was just killing people, scoring goals. Like I've never seen anything like it. So we beat Ottawa in seven. And then by the time we got to Carolina, we were – so gassed and so drained and we were on the cusp of winning that series and we lost three games in overtime just heartbreakers and uh carolina ended up beating us in six or whatever and they went on to detroit one or they went on to beat detroit or detroit one uh beat them in the final but um that was a great run man it was a lot of fun to be around that was uh it was great hockey and a great experience man it was it was awesome you find, like, as far as your memory, looking back in your career now, like, usually deep runs, like, really brings teams together and galvanizes them. Like, is, is that kind of where your, your sweet spot is as far as, like, your memory looking back of the, that group of guys and, and battling, getting through Islanders and doing those types of things? Yeah, that was, uh, as a team goes and doing what it needed to take to win and guys stepping up when good players go down, you talk about depth and needing depth, obviously – you need that to win Stanley Cups and you need guys to step up and fill those roles. And we had a ton of guys that did that that year. Uh, Danny Markoff was on that team, like guys like him and Yuskevich, you know, blocking shots, you know, the little things like blocking shots with your face, like not even thinking twice about it. I know you played with him. The guy was like a crazy man, but I'm that, you know, those guys and you know, that run and the camaraderie we had and the success we had was a lot of fun, but I'll tell you what, the one year that I, really look at our teams that we had was um the year before the lockout so was that oh four is that oh three yeah oh three oh four when we lost to philly in overtime in game six that team that we had that year uh was on paper one of the best teams ever 
Like, I don't know how we didn't win, whatever, you know, have you. But the sad part is that whole team would have been together the next year for a full season. Like, we acquired Brian Leach that year. We had Owen Nolan. We had Nui, Robs, Eddie Belfour, Matts. Like, our team was stacked, stacked. And we ended up losing to Philly. Hard-fought series, lost an OT game six in the second round. And then the season was canceled the next year. Everyone's contract expired. And the Leafs never made a playoffs for 10 years after that, legitimately. Right. I don't think they've won a playoff round if since that year. Right. Because, right, they've been in the playoffs, but they keep playing Boston and losing. Yeah. No, I think you're so, right. I don't think they've won a round, round since then. It's been that uh, long. But that that was the team. That team was, I'll tell you what, man, we had all a piece to the puzzle. Like we were tough, we had depth, we were we had a goalie, we we had it all. Uh that's I really regret that. Like looking back that that year got flushed down the toilet that lockout year because I really think that we would have had a chance to and the fact that we lost the year before and having that that knowledge and, and then having all the guys come back, you know, sometimes you gotta lose to win. And you look yeah. at the Oilers and the Islanders. I truly think that looking back, like that's that's the hole in my stomach that year that we lost because of the lockout, because I really think we had a chance to compete for it all that year. Yeah, that's tough because it doesn't happen all the time, as you know, right? 1,100 games and you're, you know, like that's, it doesn't, the, the, the perfect storm doesn't always happen. And it's too bad that that got, the carpet got pulled from under you guys. That must have been a hell of a time though. I mean, being a, I mean, that's a successful run there for Toronto, right? Like the, the city was behind you guys, obviously a lot of good players. Um, Boy, it must just even bring a smile to your face just even thinking about those those years there. Uh, I can imagine what that was like um, going through those playoff rounds and and being competitive. And like you said, like scoring, you you had some years there, man. Like I, a little bit of homework I did there. You mean you you were uh, you were up for the Norris the one year, uh, fourth and fourth and votes or whatever it was, or third or you were, and you were third in goals to uh, Lidstrom and uh, and Zuboff. I think that was an 0506. Like that's some big names and some big numbers, man. Like I must have been feeling obviously really good about your game and when and where you were at on a personal level. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, like I said, I got really comfortable there. I finally felt like I had a home. You know, I had great coaches and in, in Pat Quinn and um, and Ricky Lee, and then later on Paul Maurice, like that, that believed in me. And, uh, you know, obviously great teams, you know, playing with guys like how can you not have good numbers playing with Cabby and Mats and Alex McGillney and, you know, all these guys, like uh, just being a part of that and being able to be on the ice with those guys, uh, you know, I was just reaped the benefits of it. It was spectacular. When, uh, so the lockout year, and I mean, I'm, I'll, it's not a, it's just a small little blip, but it was just super interesting to see because I didn't even really know anything about it. So you go to Sweden. One, why Sweden? Two, why does it look like it went so bad? And uh, <laughs> yeah, what was what was that all about? Here's a little tidbit for you. Okay, so this shows you about like uh, the mental side of the game, right? So the lockout happened, and a lot of guys were playing in Europe. I was not. Uh, I had stayed home, uh, was trying to have a baby, you know, whatever. Um, at some point during that lockout, there were whispers that, okay, it might get done. We might be playing in January. Okay. So now I see all these guys playing in Europe and I'm like, well, you know, I can't not be playing. You know, what if the season does start? I'm not going to be ready. I'm not skating or whatever. So a, I went over there with the wrong attitude. I was going there out of necessity rather than because I wanted to go over there. So I was going because I didn't want to be behind the eight ball. If 
if it started. Yeah. Uh, so I really didn't want to. I felt like I had to. Uh, Sweden, uh, honors Ericsson. I don't know if you play with Bubba. Do you play with Bubba? Nope. Uh, so Bubba was a good friend of mine, playing Tron with him. He had ties to Sweden. Uh, knew someone with the HV71 team and said, uh, let's go together. It'll be more fun. We go together. They'll take us both. You know, let's go play. Let's go get ready. I was like, all right, whatever. Let's go. So uh, went over there. Uh, totally different game. Uh, big ice. Not really beneficial for my style of play. Um, and then going over there mentally, not wanting to be there was tough. And then, you know, get there and it's freaking, you don't see the sun. It's like two a days, you know, you're on the ice morning and night, literally don't see the sun. You go to the rink before the sun's up, you come out, sun's gone, you know, um, start playing. We lose out of the gate, lose, 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 lose every game. So it's miserable. Uh, my heart wasn't in it. My game was terrible. Um, it just shows you what mental capacity. If you don't, if you're not truly invested in something, your game will suffer. I was terrible. So game, whatever. We're like, oh, and oh, and nine or oh, and 10. So game 10 comes and the coach is like, uh, barely speaks English is like, um, so over there, they dress like eight D, but only six play, but you actually sit on the bench and your equipment. If you're not playing, you know, part of the team and the coach, <laughs> Pulls me aside like morning skate or whatever. He's like, uh, we're going to switch things up uh, tonight. Uh, uh, you're going to be the extra defenseman, uh, you know. Um, and I'm like, I'm like, excuse me? He's like, uh, yeah, you're going to – we want you to dress and, you know, cheer the guys on and stuff. And I literally look the guy in the eye. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like if you think I'm going to put my equipment on and, and cheer the team on, I'm like, you're sadly mistaken. I'm like, I'll be packing my stuff. And I grabbed my stuff and I left. Probably not the best. Now, I would have done the same thing when I was him because I was terrible over there. Like literally terrible. It was embarrassing. I think I had like 40 minors and like I, I was just terrible. I just wasn't invested in it. And it was just a bad situation for me. And I would have done the same thing. I probably didn't handle it the right way. But at the time, I just didn't even want to be there. So whatever. I packed my stuff, went home. Yeah. Uh, but fast forward now. So it shows you I couldn't play in the Swedish Elite League. I was terrible. And then the next season comes and I go out and have the best year of my life, you know, like, but leading up to that, like, um, obviously excited for hockey to start again. Um, but there's a few things that go into that, that story, um, that summer. Um, I told you I was trying to have a baby when I came back from Sweden, you know, we were unsuccessful before I went to Sweden and we were, you know, working on, it wasn't working for whatever reason. I come back, took some time off it worked you know we had, so my wife gets pregnant leading up to the season um she's due that year right at camp time or whatever so uh, i was lucky enough to have a baby like september 28th right before the season started it was like a dream come true and everything kind of just took off from there like with the season um and just you know having a kid and you know the light of my life and all that stuff uh just kind of everything just kind of clicked on the ice at least Right. No, that's amazing. And then that was your contract expired at the end of that year, correct? Yeah. It was like, like I said, all about timing, right? Yeah. So here we are again, my contract's up. I just happened to put together the season of all seasons at 30 years old, like going to unrestricted free agency for the first time in my life. Like, um, but I'll tell you a couple other little stories about that year that I don't get into much detail about too much, but uh, so 
I, I've told this story at my camp too. Like, so that summer, um, it's an Olympic year in 06. And my game had been building obviously over the past five years or whatever in Toronto. And I basically felt like I deserved, I belonged in that group of players. Um, so summer comes and they have a summer camp and they invite 12 defensemen and I, I don't get invited. So I'm rattled for one. Pat's um, yeah. the coach too, which hurts a little bit too, because he's yeah. my coach and you know, not that he had a say in it because you know, there's a bunch of people that go into it. So yeah. um, instead of just sitting on my hands and, you know, just taking it, um, I pick up the phone and I call Steve Tambellini, who's on the board, who I had in Vancouver, who I have a relationship with. And by no means did I call him and like ream him out or anything, but I just called him and said, you know, Steve, I said, I, I just don't understand why, you know, I'm left out of this group. You know, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone in that group of 12. I said, but I think I belong. I think I belong there. And, you know, he gave me the spiel, whatever, you know, there's a lot of good players. And just cause you're not in that group doesn't mean you're not going to make the team. You know, but everyone knows, you know, if you don't go to the camp, no one makes the, you know, whatever, you know, right. no one ever teams. So, so I got that in my head. So literally that whole summer, like I'm on, you know, Gary Roberts program. And oh, I never mentioned Matt Nickel, who was our strength coach in Toronto during that whole Gary Roberts and uh, Matt Sandin era. Uh, Matt's the guy who brought BioSteel. I'm sure you've heard of BioSteel and all that stuff. Matt Nichols, the, the man behind all that, but he was our strength coach there. And he was my like guardian angel for the last 11 years of my career since I met him. Uh, one of the best strength coaches out there is still good friends. Still talk to him to this day. Still trains NHL players. I send some of my prospects to him. He is awesome. So he did all my summer training and I was old enough at that point that after being around Gary and Matt's that I had figured out I didn't need someone to push me anymore. I just needed to know what to do and I could go do it on my own. Like I was the guy at the track at six in the morning by myself doing my, my sprints, pulling the sled and then back at the gym at noon, not having someone tell me to do it, just doing it on my own. Right. But that whole summer, all I trained and thought about was like making that Olympic team. I get all, I get all emotional. Uh, so literally, like I tell the story, like that was my fire, like that whole summer. Like when I trained, I went, I like just pushed myself through two days and all that stuff, like literally put everything I had into it. And then fast forward to having a baby and now I'm really gonna get emotional because uh, my wife had like a horrible birth. Like I won't get into like, the gory details of it, but um, whatever. My daughter came up, came out sunny side up and wouldn't come out. We are in labor for eight hours. Um, they had to pull her out with forceps, whatever. In the process, they, you know, tore my wife in half, basically. Uh, a day later in the hospital, she goes to get out of bed and she's paralyzed. Like her right leg is paralyzed. She falls to the floor. So like two days later, they just ship her home to me. Season starting. I got a paralyzed wife who has to sit in a SIDS bath for literally almost two years. Like, like no joke. It was mentally and physically, I'll say physically, she wasn't normal again for 
a solid two years. Mentally, you know, time's postpartum by a million when you're paralyzed and you can't even care for your baby and, you know, your husband's going on road trips or whatever. Um, wow. So I got that going on off the ice and the season's starting. Um, obviously got to deal with that too. And, you know, this speaks volumes to mental preparation and how much of that is actually involved in hockey and sports. And I think it's like fricking 90% after going through that year because I was sleeping less. I was up nights because my wife couldn't care for the baby. I get home from a game and I do the night shift till four in the morning because I was wired anyway. And then I go to bed from four till seven, get up, go to the rink, practice, come home, take care of the baby again every day. And to have the success I had that year on the ice with all the shit that was going on off the ice just shows you how much I prepared myself that summer because of the Olympic snub thing that nothing was going to affect how I played on the ice. No matter what was going on, I had mentally prepared myself that whole summer for a goal and a dream I had, and I was going to see it through no matter what was going on. So, you know, long story short, I went out and I forced them to take me on that team. And they had to, and they took me, you know, I, they took me as the extra defenseman or whatever, but whatever, I still made the Olympic team and I can, you know, go to my grave saying I played in the Olympics and represented my country. And a lot of guys can't say that. Uh, but the off ice stuff was, that was a year from, from hell, like literally. Um, but you know, we got through it, whatever it is, what it is, uh, makes you stronger in the end. Oh, that's amazing. So like, so th as far as years go then, so that was, that was oh what year was that oh five oh six that was oh five oh six right because the olympics so you had just come off a real good year and then that was the year that the olympics yeah okay so then you worked your tail off and then you actually did get selected to like what what tambellini said could happen actually did happen yeah and then you ended yeah. up playing correct too because you were a reserve but didn't jovo or yeah. somebody go out and then you end up getting guys got hurt so i ended up uh playing like i, I played every game I played sparingly, you know, worked the second PP unit and played, you know, spot duty. Um, so I was actually on the ice and on the team and all that stuff. You know, we didn't, we lost in the quarterfinals, which sucks, but still just to be a part of that whole experience and get to sit in the Olympic village with athletes from, you know, a hundred different countries and see what they went through to get there and stuff. It was, it was so cool. Just the experience that, you know, being a part of that whole thing was, uh, you know, and the list of names on that team just to be in the same room as those guys was, uh, you know, a dream come true for sure. Anything, any takeaways from there as far as being in that room with those guys and, you know, probably majority of them Hall of Famers, I, I assume. I can't, didn't look at that team. Like, is it, yeah, any, any big takeaways of, uh, or aha moments or wows of, of being around those guys? And did you ever feel, actually another one, did you, did you feel like, I know you said you wanted to be in that group, right? And that you deserve to be in that group of 12. Um, did you have any, any sense of like, holy shit, like I do belong here or that I don't belong here? Like how, how did that go? No, by that point I felt I belonged there. I think I, I think I felt I belonged in that group, but it was just to be around guys, just to see what other guys do and how they prepare for games was just more insight for me watching the, you know, Chris Prongers or Adam Foots or, you know, Marty Barrera's on that team, Lou, you know, all these guys that just, 
Joe Sackick, you know, like legends of the game and how they prepare and what they do on the ice and watching them, their demeanors in the locker room and their pregame preparation and stuff like that was just an eye opener. Just to be around all that knowledge and those greats and Hall of Famers was just spectacular. Yeah, I believe it. Um, credit to you though, man. Like, man, you got all motion there. I really appreciate you sharing that. Like that that human side of the game is like where I think is you know, like that's, that's the stuff you mean, like no one, not many people knew that I bet you mean, and here you are wearing a letter for the Maple Leafs and, you know, have, have this new deal and you, now you got a new baby and you're the one getting up and you know, it's like, you're still a, you're still a dude at the end of the day with a family and with the, with a life outside of hockey. And sometimes, you know, fans forget that. And, and to be the professional, like and that's where it comes in, right? How do you make it work? How can you do it? Right. Because it's hard. It's hard just trying to figure it out when you're a single guy, let alone you have people that are dependent upon you and in a situation like that. So uh, it really sounds wild, though, that you were able to be that successful on the ice with all that with all that emotion and stuff happening off the ice. Did you think how did it come? How did it come together for you? Was it was it just like that three months of training prior, like that really started to kind of forge the, the brain that was required to, to, to make that happen? Yeah, I just think that I had trained so hard that summer with such focus that it was just ingrained in me that I was going to be successful that year. Like, I just, I knew it. I didn't doubt myself no matter what was going on off the ice that when I got to the rank, that sanctuary or whatever, I was already, I already knew what was going to happen, Yeah. you know, and, you know, the belief in yourself too. I'd finally like found a home, you know, I had doubted myself for so many years that, you know, learning to believe in yourself and, um, you know, trusting it too, you know, not doubting it anymore. (laughs) Do you, do you think, um, do you think that the mental, like, so, so obviously guys focus. And one of the things that I talk about is, okay, like when you train, you're, you're, you're training your body, you're trying to get stronger or quicker, whatever it is you're trying to do. But a lot of guys aren't approaching that in the sense of like, I'm actually training myself mentally. They don't even really get that aspect of that, you know, like that you're, that you are making this holistic, the holistic self of the player better because you're committing to getting up at six in the morning because you're committing to be the guy that's going to go back and go do something else again. You know, like all those little habits, I think, pay dividends. Do you, do you, did you notice it not only um, the physical aspect of you being a better player because of the time you put in and also from the mental side, could, could you see that happening for yourself? Yes. And the leadership stuff and stuff like that all comes with that. You know, I just felt, uh, like more of a pro and, you know, someone guys could look to now instead of being the guy looking at other guys, right. you know, and that was ingrained in me from those other players, you yeah. know, That's um, so awesome. I didn't mention like earlier, my, sh- my short stint in Chicago, I got to play with Doug Gilmore, who was unbelievable, like as a captain and leader and just the way he approached the game on the ice was like, you know, do or die. Like every game was his last, like just yeah. watching a guy like that. Uh, and going back to, I forgot to mention that about like, like you said, being just wanting to fit in, you know, remember we spoke about that. I've never seen a leader like, like Dougie too. Emma, sorry. Um, when I was in Chicago, um, I was a young kid, you know, and you know, I'd been around the league, you know, but I was still young. And to go to a team with, I grew up in Calgary and Doug Gilmore won the Stanley Cup in 89 when I was 13 years old. So obviously, you know, like, are you kidding me? 
And this guy would pick me up from the rink every day at my house, drive me to the rink every day. He was my chaperone, took me under his wing. Just no questions asked, like went out of his way to do that. Uh, not knowing that I was like in awe of this guy, you know, like, you know, and I'd grown up watching him and watching him hoist his down, going to the parade and all that stuff. Like, yeah. And just selfless, like just, and then to watch how we approach the games on little guy, like look like nothing off the ice. And when he got on the ice, it was like played for keeps, man. Like I've never seen him like it and be around like that. And that, now I felt like being around those guys, those masses and that now, you know, I felt like I was projecting that, you know, yeah. like leadership qualities, you know, where I didn't before when I, at 22, I wasn't ready to be a captain. I didn't have those qualities. Yeah. You know, I wanted them, but I didn't have them. I didn't have that experience. I didn't have, you know, I didn't jump all in. And now I was at the point where I felt like, yeah, okay, I got it figured out. Okay, now I'm ready. Yeah. I love that. I love that story because you were, I mean, you were a letter in Spokane. I think you, were you even the captain the one year there? Yeah. 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 So you were, a, you were a captain one year. Yeah. You were a captain, a uh, letter on the world junior team, right? An early identified guy at 22 years old to be a captain of an NHL team. So like you are a guy that had leadership capabilities and abilities and people recognize that. But I love how you talk about even the ele- uh, evolution of your own leadership, like how that goes to different levels and how you need to level that up to truly step into that, to step into that role in a real way. And that's such a powerful thing. I talk about that confidence that you, like you earn the confidence a lot of times too, right? You earn you earn the right to be able to walk in those shoes and walk through that door and feel like you belong in that room. And, uh, and doing that stuff off the ice is a lot of times an earmark for that happening because you can't guarantee the success on the ice, right? I mean, that's, I talk about that a lot too, right? You're, you're going to be the success, the result of being successful on the ice is awesome. But like, how do you feel confident before you've gotten that success? There's a way to do it. Right. And that's what we're talking about is like really stepping into those scenarios off the ice. I listened to an interview with uh, Martin St. Louis, of who you obviously know. And like, his story is crazy too. Like he didn't get to the show until 25 or something and then ended up winning a heart trophy and all the other accolades. And now he's in the hall of fame. And he talked about like, it took him probably two or three years to think that he actually belonged in the NHL, you know, to believe in himself and to earn the right to be there and to be amongst those guys. And then he became one of the best. And uh, like that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, layers to that onion when you talk about the mental side of the game and feeling like you belong, but it's way beyond how good you can stick handle and how well you can skate. I'll tell you that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what we, I got to touch on it here before we get into the, the rest, but like things ended up going South as far as like from the fans perspective with you uh, and they're notoriously hard on, on guys and, and their team sometimes rightfully so. And sometimes not like what, where, where did that happen? How did that start? Like, I'm looking at your stats. I'm like, my God, why would they ever got on this guy's back? But like, what, what, break that down in your, in, in your perception of what happened there. Well, things started to fizzle. Obviously we missed the playoffs. Uh, it, you know, it was a comedy of stuff. You know, the one year we missed the playoffs by one point. The next year we missed the playoffs by like three points. And then obviously Paul Maurice came in, you know, Pat got fired. Paul Maurice came in. Fergie came in. I had the big contract, obviously. Uh, Still had decent numbers, but uh, the game had lacked some consistency, I'd say, because the team did not have success. We didn't make the playoffs. A lot of, obviously, expectations. And, you know, Toronto's a tough place to play. And uh, like I said, everyone should experience it. Uh, Although, 
I had seven successful years. The last year was death. Like it was, it was hell for me. Uh, I scored that OT winner on my own team in Buffalo in like, it was like game six of the regular season, like a nothing game. You would have thought it was like the Stanley cup final. And from that point on that year was a disaster. It was just every time I touched the puck on home ice, I got booed. I couldn't go anywhere. You know, you go to the movies, people are like heckling you. You go to the grocery store. You really? really? My house is getting egged. I'm getting hate mail. Come on. Egged. Oh, buddy. It was so bad. It oh. was so bad. It was so hard. It sucked the life out of the fun of the game for me. Like it literally, like I had always been a guy that loved going to the rank and loved playing, just loved being around boys, loved the competition. And that year was so trying uh, mentally. It just took my love for the game away. And, you know, you can't perform if you can't hold it together. It was so hard on me. Um, That's and then amazing. Obviously that summer came around, you know, they fired Fergie. They brought in Cliff Fletcher to clean up the mess. And Cliff wanted to trade everyone. Um, we all had no move trade clauses and no one would waive them <laughs> and so we all hung around and then i remember my exit meeting with uh, cliff at the end of the year he just called me in sat me down and said uh i think it'd be best for you and the organization if you played somewhere else next year think about it i'll call you in a couple weeks <laughs> and by that point i had succumbed to the fact that yes if i want to continue playing hockey it's got to be somewhere else because it just isn't going to work here and I needed a fresh start somewhere. So for me, it worked out that Florida was very interested. Uh, and it was like a breath of fresh air coming down here, you know, um, just being a way to get away from the game, you know. All right. You know, come to Florida, drop off into obscurity and just have fun again. Yeah. Like, so I came down here and I, I was just Brian. Like, it, you know, no one knew who I was. It was. I could go anywhere I wanted, do whatever I wanted. And I got that spark back. And had fun and, you know, had three fun years down here. Uh, became captain in Florida, too, which is another honor. And got to do it again, do it the right way. And um, it was great. I love my time in Florida. It was fun. Yeah, that's wild, man. What a story. And I can't – so that was kind of the turning point, that OT, that 4-3. You're trying to clear yeah. a puck in front for all those – I mean – I didn't really remember and I had to, and I had to find it here going in, but yeah, you're, it's four on three overtime. You're killing the penalty. It's a rebound and you're trying to clear the puck. It goes off the inside of the post all the way across and just barely squeaks across the line, but it's an own goal and, and you guys yeah. lose. But I mean, like yeah, I said, it was kind of a rolling puck and I just, you know, I knew there wasn't much time left and I just, pan I was just trying to hack it to the corner. And when I hit it, it, it went right off the inside post, off the other post and in like with like right. one or whatever. And then it was just, I think I was on the front page of the paper for like three days. Brian McClotz, like, oh, it was just craziness. Man. Right. And then just from there, it just kept steamrolling. It got gained momentum. and Even like, I tried to rein it back in. And I'll tell you what, man, like Paul Maurice was, he was so good to me through that tough. He knew how hard I was having it. And he was so good to me trying to put me in situations to make me successful again and get my confidence back. And it just seemed like every time I gained like, momentum and try to get it back and then i'd like throw a pizza up the middle like being play play great for 58 minutes throw a pizza up the middle goal and then it was like we're right back to where it just i couldn't put it all together right. it was like it was done but i'll tell you what he was so good to me during that time like you know we'd have closed door meetings and it just be like buddy you know what can i do to, you know, like he was so good to me 
Right. Like, uh, it was just a tough time. I just couldn't mentally get over it. And, mm. and then I got hurt and I broke my, my hand and I, w- I missed like the most I'd ever missed in a season. I think I missed like 30 games. I shattered my hand. It just seemed like an accumulation of stuff. Yeah. My, my time had run its course there, as yeah. did a bunch of us. That um, listening to your stories and like the, the stuff that you remember and the, and the stuff that you like talking about, it, it seems again, like, so there's, there's Paul Maurice, who's, who's making an impact because he's treating you like a, like a human and not a hockey player, right? Doug Gilmore picking you up at the house, you know, like these, uh, you know, Brian Burke talking to you beforehand about getting traded and letting you know so you can be prepared. Like, isn't that wild like to me like that like that's like that's the part that makes a difference like it really does and you can make a difference and um i assume that you're using that now with with the guys that you're working with you try and be you try and treat them like people and and not and not you know just hockey players because that that human side seems like you can really make a difference with guys absolutely that's the most important part it's no coincidence all those people stayed in hockey a long time or are still playing hockey you know it's the there's great players out there, but if you're a good person and a marginal player and do the right things, you're going to have a career. You're going to get by. Look at like, you never see any real complete assholes have 20 year careers for the most part. It's a rarity. Those bubble guys that are, are assholes. They don't last because teams don't sign them and they fizzle out. You know, if you're a good teammate and a leader and you're willing to put your ego aside and do what you got to do, uh, on and off the ice or be a good teammate and stuff those guys stick around they have careers they have you know uh you know i used to one guy i'll, I'll say to you that it's about adapting too like you got to be willing to take on a certain role and stuff like i said you're not going to be their top six forward i'll use a guy i played with in toronto as an example uh matt stajan yeah great guy young kid came to the leafs when we were like in our prime as a young kid out of the OHL, you know, found his niche, got in there, played some games, you know, had a good career, got traded to Calgary, kind of reinvented himself, took on a lower role, best faceoff guy, PK guy, uh, mentor to young guys, freaking guy, got a thousand games, thousand games in the NHL, reinvents himself, stuck around, took on a fourth line role. Uh, you know why he stuck around? Because he's one of the best humans I've ever met. And a leader and a guy that puts other people in front of him, takes guys under his wing. Those are the guys that stick around. Those are the guys that have careers and make a living out of this. Yeah. And those are the guys that stick around in, in hockey afterwards too. You know, it's, it's no coincidence. So yeah. um, I, I definitely preach that uh, to these kids. Uh, more importantly than any of the skill stuff, it's more of the people thing and the human side of the game. And, you know, put yourself in their shoes and how they would feel if they came in and no one talked to them or whatever, you know, like a Euro coming over and doesn't speak English, you know, yeah. put yourself in their shoes going over to Russia and not being able to speak a language and no one on your team talks to you. Like, you know, it's a, it's a big thing. Yeah. It's a huge thing. Well, and the relationships between two, like the players that you're trying to get to the NHL and even yourself, you know, like sometimes there's so many different levels of relationships within that game, right? There's your teammates that you want to be good. You want to be a good teammate for your teammates. I, I personally, I never had an issue with that. I mean, I love that team aspect of the game and like being together with the guys, but then you have like the, the relationship with the trainers. That's, a, that's another level. There's a relationship with the coaches, which is another level. There's a relationship with the, maybe the higher up guys that sometimes if you get interact with them, like, you know, it, it, it is a relationship game. Guys got to, guys got to care about you and, uh, and you got to give them reason to. And I think, 
finding a way to be authentic with that is is a challenge sometimes, right? To be to be who you are and let that and let that stand out. And and I love that you had this whole career arc of like starting as a captain you know and you you had a letter for most points in your career but I mean having that letter that C at 22 and then you end up with it again in in Florida in a completely different headspace at a completely different age um and obviously with a completely different understanding of what it meant to wear that letter you know can can you describe yourself as a captain in, in Florida and and were you were you still that guy that was that learned how to how to really work out and take things to another level like you did that uh, Olympic year yeah you know what like at that point in time I was older and I wasn't the same player I was back in Toronto, but I figured out the leadership part of it. And I, I'm really genuinely humbled that I got a chance to do it again. Cause I know I didn't do a great job when I was 22. So to have that opportunity again uh, in Florida with a young group of players and be the guy that tried to pull the group together and show them the right way and what it took to be a pro was, uh, was an honor. I loved it. Uh, I love being a captain. I love being that guy that, was a voice in the room and, you know, tried to be uh, enthusiastic every day of my life. And uh, I live for it. I, I honestly, it was, uh, it was fun. That's all. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. They, uh, <clears throat> I, I've, I've had the discussions offline before, like with this, that whole, like the magnitude of being a captain and, and how it seems like it's, it's the thing to do with these young draft picks. Now you get a, you know, you get a, whoever, a, an Eichel or a McDavid. And I know these guys have been around the league a little bit longer now but they get like, they give them this C like the C like at, at such young ages sometimes. And it's just like, I just hold my breath with those guys. It's like, man, like let them learn how to be a player. And, and I don't care what type of person they are, but like to really be a captain of an NHL team at that age, like to know how to do it um, is so hard. And like, it's such a small little window there. And it's, and if the wrong guy's wearing the C too, and not saying that Connor McDavid's the wrong guy to wear the C, but you know what I mean? Like if, it, if, it's, if it's not the guy, you know, that's, that's a tough thing to win around too. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Like you said you shouldn't have had it at 22. Like, do you think anyone should have it at 22? Yeah, it depends on their personality and their demeanor or their confidence or their maturity level, you know? Uh, certain guys can handle it. I obviously couldn't. Uh, it is a lot of pressure though. It is. Whether you think it is or isn't, when you get that letter put on your chest, it's an honor and it's, it's a responsibility to the city, the team, the organization, the people, the fans, the, you know, the group. And it takes a special person to do that. Uh, and I've been with good ones and bad ones and right. you just kind of learn along the way, you know. No, that's, it's so crazy. Um, and we're going, I, I told you we would do this. Like it's impossible not to, not to talk and just go and we're barely even into what you're doing now. And I don't, I, I want to respect your time caber. So I'll, I'll ask you just a couple of questions about what you're doing now. Right. So now you're, you're helping young guys get to the next level. What, um, can you sort of describe your, your role and, and what the philosophy is within the Panthers of, of how to go about doing that? Um, and I'll preface just with one thing, because we all know how important player development is now. It's, it's one of the biggest aspects of being successful in the NHL with the salary cap. I mean, if you can't develop your own players, the draft is one thing, but you have to meet, now be able to get them to be in the NHL. So for you to be responsible for that is a, is a big deal. And, and what, what, what is your approach and what is the, the approach of the Panthers in doing that? Yeah, so basically I run all the player development here. Uh, I've been doing that for, God, man, I think this might be my eighth or ninth year with the team. So I've kind of worked my way up the ladder here. But uh, it, it is very important, like you said, especially in a cap world. you got to develop from within. So the scouts do all the hard work. They're in the rinks every day, uh, 28 days a month watching these players. And essentially once we draft a player, uh, it's my responsibility along with the AHL coaches and uh, – 
my assistant, Mike Ryan, to A, teach these kids what it takes to be a pro, and B, hopefully help them get there and be able to realize that dream that I was able to do. Uh, and there's going to be bumps in the road, and I'm going to be there uh, shoulder to cry on, and I'm going to be there to kick them in the ass when they need it too. Uh, more importantly, just help them become a good human off the ice too. I think that's the most important thing. Uh, a lot of these guys are, are kids and, you know, um, have been moms made them breakfast and, you know, folded their clothes and their billets have done everything for them. And all of a sudden they're leaving home at 20 years old to turn pro and living in Springfield, Mass. And it's a whirlwind. So uh, I'm there to help them get through that and help them become a professional and uh, mature on and off the ice and learn to live and just life skills in general. And, uh, you know, uh, my dream is that they all get to do it. You know, that's a sad truth that not everyone's going to be able to get there, but I'm going to try my best to help these kids get there. Yeah, I know that's amazing. And you I mean, even talking about that, uh, the off ice stuff, right? Like that's, I mean, there we go back to the human, the person side of it, right? Like sometimes we got to take care of that person side and develop that so they can become a better player. Um, and I, and I do see, I do see the benefits of that with what I do. And, and I think we have an interesting perspective on it now, now being fathers, right? I think that actually probably helps what you're doing because you, you, you see the responsibility of being a dad within your own three kids, right? Raising them and, and understanding that, uh, yeah, like what makes them tick going back to Brian Maxwell, like how, each one of those guys ticks a little different. How do you reach them? How do you get the most out of them? How do you let, get them to believe and trust you that that's what your intention is, right? Like there's so, there's so many nuances to that and, and, uh, and having the ability to, to kind of hone that craft as a dad, I'm sure helps you uh, in, in, in working with the players. Well, you touch on the human side and that's the biggest thing that like, when we get to hold this, you know, it's one thing to go see a kid play on the weekend and talk to him after a game and stuff, but do you really get to know the kid in that short time? No. So the best part of my year is when we have our development camp and I'm around these kids 24 seven for five or six days you get to see their personalities, who's the leaders, who's the clowns, who's the introvert. You know, what does make them tick? Because they're all not the same. You can't give the same speech to every kid. You got to go at kids in a different way. They're all going to react differently to different types of uh, self-motivation. So it's a matter of finding out and unlocking what does make each personal individual tick and trying to help them achieve that and figure it out for themselves and get there. It's not easy, but it's fun. You know, they're all different kids, and some kids are at college, some are juniors, some are Euros. But the fun part is getting to know them and hopefully getting inside their heads and, and helping them learn to, um, you know, prepare their, their bodies and their brains for, you know, the upcoming roller coaster of their life. You know, it's, yeah. you know, like I tell them all, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's going to be a whirlwind, but. You know, we're all here in this organization to help you get there and we'll do whatever possible. You guys got to be willing to put the time in and ask questions and be a sponge and all that stuff. Yeah, I remember when we talked about, maybe it would be a month ago now and we were speaking a little bit about this and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it was like when I asked you, like, what's the biggest thing you're, you're working on with these guys? And, and uh, you know, to paraphrase, you're like, well, they're, they're so, these guys are so talented now. Like they are so skilled and, and they come kind of ready. But like I, I, you said, you found yourself working with them mostly on stuff like away from the rink, you know, like that was where, where most of your time is spent with like the life skills and the preparation. And is that, do I remember that conversation accurate? Is that a, is that a true depiction of what's going on? Yeah, you know, like life skills in general. Like we at, at Dev Camp, we do 
cooking classes. We do mental stuff. We do nutrition. We obviously do, uh, now we do sleep stuff for, you know, your body's got to get the right rest and you, know, you got to do this stuff. You, um, you know, cool downs. What the hell is a cool down when we play? Nothing, you know, all these life skills, like just everything that goes into being a human being. But now with social media and all this stuff, it is a different time. And to have conversations with kids, like some kids are, they're easy to text with, but they can't look you in the eye and have a conversation with you. It's like pulling teeth. So trying to unlock that box is half the battle now. Right. Uh, these kids are so ingrained in technology and their phones. Whereas we didn't have that stuff that you were forced to talk to each other yeah. and just try to, I don't know if I'm old school, but bring back that the human side, that, that camaraderie, that team mentality, that's going above and beyond and getting to know the guy next to you and wanting and caring about that guy when you're in the locker room is, is a big part of the puzzle. I still believe in. Yeah. I don't think that goes away. And I think the teams that are still doing it well are, are getting that part right, you know? Um, but it is hard. I can imagine the challenge the techno that, because you know, you're dealing with a generation of athletes now that have been like, they've grown up around this. I mean, that's all they've kind of known. And, and some of those, uh, social skills, uh, in our eyes, you know, older guys would be lacking. Right. And for them, yep. it's like, it's their peers and what they're used to. But I think to be successful as a group, you got to, you got to hone that. So yeah, I can imagine trying to, trying to teach those skills. Are you um, on a more of an organizational kind of structure side? Do you get involved then you're helping these guys become better athletes and f find a way to, for them to wear the Florida Panther Jersey. Are you involved in the discussions about who actually does get the call or who is going to get moved up or is it your job just strictly to prepare and somebody else makes the decision? Yeah, no, I, like I said, I, I started in the development side of things and now I'm, uh, I'm still running all the player development stuff, but now I'm like director of player personnel. So I'm, I'm a lot more involved in all aspects of the team now, uh, which is fun. You know, uh, I've been very fortunate to have a great mentor here in Dale Talon who took me under his wing and I've been able to, over the course of the last eight years, sit in on every meeting, pro, amateur, trade deadline, everything. Uh, so now I'm to the point that, yeah, I'm in conversations about, uh, with the coaches from the HL and the assistant GM, Eric Joyce about, you know, who does get called up, who's playing the best, uh, how can we help our team now? Um, uh, right. I make my own draft list. Now I sit in on all the zoom draft combine meetings. Uh, I'm a lot more heavily involved in a little bit of everything. You know, I'm just trying to better myself and learn about what goes into putting a team on the ice. Uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Uh, you know, what goes into building a team and stuff. Uh, the development stuff's been fun, but I'm definitely intrigued by all aspects of, of putting an actual winning team on the ice now. And it, it, it's been fun to be a part of all these meetings and gain all the knowledge and be able to actually have a say in the matter now. It's, it's a lot more fun, obviously. That's pretty wild. So you're actually part of the, the well, have something to do with the draft selection process and who's, and who, who's being taken. Uh, when you went through it. I went through it. Like as far as those questions that you're talking about, you know, like that you're getting asked what for you, what would be important or what would you be trying to get out of a, what are you trying to identify from a player when you're, when you'd be asking them questions before selecting them? Character, self-motivation, maturity, um, and passion. Those would be my things. Uh, put the skill aside. If you have someone that wants it, believes in himself, mature, self-motivated, you know, doesn't need you to hold his hand the whole way. Uh, I think you've got some keys to success there.
for sure moving forward. Um, and like I touched on before, like I don't think I don't know if anyone that I didn't know this when I played as a player. Um, we just play. You don't you don't even know what goes into making a team. But now being around this and seeing the amount of work that the amateur and pro scouting staff, the time that these people put in, the time away from their families, the road trips, the hotels, the crappy cities and countries they go to, I did not have any appreciation for that part of a hockey team until I actually stepped foot in these guys' shoes and to see what they do. I cannot tell you how hard the amateur and pro scouts work on a daily basis. And, you know, like I said, over the past couple of years, I've, I've kind of expanded my role and got a little more involved and I, I build my own draft list. But, you know, to say the least, my say is like a minuscule part of what goes on. Like if I see a guy play three guy, three times this year, our scout has seen him play 15 times, you know, <laughs> like yeah. the amount of work that these guys do is just amazing. I don't think anyone really knows or appreciates what they do. Cause I never thought about when I played, I guess I just never even thought about it. You know, the scouts would come to training camp, be like, whatever. But now that I'm on the other side and I see what these guys do and I've been on some road trips with these guys, the stuff they go through and snowstorms and micro towels on the road, <laughs> and yeah. black and white TVs. It's uh I have a new appreciation for actually like these guys, you know, and then eventually down the road, these guys, some of these guys make it. You win a Stanley Cup with this guy as your captain. And yeah. this guy that slept in a freaking his car for two days to watch this guy play in high school is it's crazy. He had a big hand in it. It really, yeah. a lot of stuff goes into putting a team on the ice rather than us just lacing up the skates and playing, Yeah, you know, it, it, it's crazy to me. No, I, I, and it gives you a greater appreciation for what's, yeah, for that mechanism right around you and behind you. And, and, and that's good that you talk about that now, because I think it is good for players to know that, you know, it makes you again, more appreciative. It makes you more grateful. It makes you a better human, treat people better. I mean, all these, all these things, because as you said, way back at the beginning of our conversation, you know, you, you kind of, a lot of us had this trajectory of being the best and being told how good you are and having this type of a lifestyle that can make you unappreciative and a little bit um, complacent, right. Or whatever the right word is. Um, you know, and, and so, yeah, the more you connected to, to these people that are making these things work, it, it, it helps. And when my conversation with Ken Holland, he was, we talked about the draft and kind of how that works. And, and he was quite transparent in saying, you know, once you get out of kind of the second, third round, it's, it's usually the area scouts from there. You know, he's like, I can't see everybody. This is what I, this is what I pay them. This is why I trust them. You know? So like, and how many guys, if you can get that diamond in the rough, like a Datsuk or a Zetterberg in the fifth or sixth round, right? Like, wow. I mean, you're a part of that Stanley Cup championship for sure, right? Really? Yeah. yeah, that's really wild. Um, well, Caver, I'm going to let you go because um, I know we could do this all day and uh, we're not going to do it all day. But uh, what an amazing guest. Thanks for being so honest. Um, uh, got touching back on your on your wife I mean, she went on to have two other kids you guys have a family of three now right so she's yeah she's, so my wife i have three kids uh stevie my oldest girl is uh soon to be 15 jocelyn uh, my second daughter is 12 and lincoln my son will be nine next month uh, my wife is like i mentioned before she teaches at my kids school and she is in the process of getting her doctorate degree next summer so it'll be dr roberta mccabe and loser husband will be our christmas card <laughs>
starting after that. But that's uh, awesome. Well, good. But she's back in good health. I mean, obviously, healthy family, and she's back on her feet. And yeah, no issues. Life is good, man. Three that's healthy awesome, kids. Man. That's uh, amazing. Couldn't be better. That's great. Well, once again, thanks so much. Um, Let's continue this conversation offline for a second, but we'll, we'll stop the record button. Really appreciate everything today. So much good stuff for the young guys out there. I mean, it's an evolution and it's a personal evolution, not just an athletic evolution. And um, I think you did a great job of explaining that. So thanks so much, Caber. All right, bud. Anytime. Thanks, Pazzi. Cheers. Thank you once again for being here today and for listening to that episode with Brian McCabe. Uh, Kaber, if you're listening, thank you so much for your time. What an awesome way to connect and what an amazing way to give back and to share your story as you did, being so transparent with your, you know, your successes and, and the adversity and the failures and the things that uh, we learn from and can grow from. And for the listeners to hear that from somebody um, like you that was able to play 1,100 games in the NHL for for lots of different teams and, and to be able to be a leader on those teams and understand what it's like to to walk in those shoes and to play in those skates, uh, I, I thank you for that. And uh, and for all of you out there, we've, we've had some, I've had lots of comments about, you know, what, what are you speaking about your clients? What are you doing? How are you helping? And, and so I guess I can answer that here. I, I am uh, helping mentor uh, athletes on an individual level in, in a private client scenario to help them realize their potential and become become the best hockey players they can be and to navigate this journey uh, that that they're on and, and I approach that from a you know from a mentor aspect and from a mindset aspect I really do know and believe that the biggest differentiator right now in today's game is, is how we can handle our thoughts and our mind and our approach to the game to make sure that we are aligning our thoughts and and actions with with our goals and dreams of where we want to get to so that's one thing I, I do now um, amongst speaking and some other things. So if you want to find out more about me on a personal level and what I do, that can all be found at Up My Hockey, which is www.upmyhockey.com. That's the website that talks about me. It shows all the episodes of the podcast. It talks about my services and my story. So for those of you curious, that's where you can find out more about me outside of this podcast. So once again, thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, play hard and keep your head up. Cheers.